Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. I'm Francis. And I'm Anya. And today we're discussing chapters six through eight of The Subtle Knife, the second book in the His Dark Materials trilogy. After six lighted flyers, Lee is wandering around the Arctic looking for leads on Grumman. He goes to an observatory and grills the astronomers there. One of the astronomers is wearing a ring with the magisterium symbol on it, so Lee asks about dust to get a reaction from him and then leaves. The magisterium spy secretly follows Lee and tries to kill him, but Lee shoots him first. Lee loots the ring off the dead man's finger and makes his way to continue searching for Grumman. Rudis Scaddy and the other witches continue searching for Lyra in Chitagatsi. The witches watch the specters attack a party of humans and then talk to the only two surviving adults. They tell the witches about the decline of their world over the past several hundred years due to the specters. Chitagatsi is now a city of thieves, getting all their goods from passing into other worlds and stealing from them. The number of specters has increased dramatically since the recent gigantic storm, the one caused by Lord Asriel opening the bridge between worlds. They also talk about a recent influx of angels and point out a flock of them in the sky. Rudisketti flies up to chat with the angels who say they are following Lord Asriel's call, and she follows them through several worlds to the fortress that he is building. In Chapter 7, The Rolls Royce, Lyra gets impatient and leaves a sleeping Will in Chigatsa to go visit Will's Oxford and meet the scholar Mary Malone. Police officers are waiting in the dark matter lab to question her, and Lyra accidentally reveals to them that she knows Will. Lyra and Pantalaemon flee the building and the officers. Completely coincidentally, the weirdly familiar old man from the museum pulls up beside her in a fancy car and gives Lyra a ride. Back in Chigatsa, Will wakes up to the sounds of Lyra screaming when she realizes that the old man stole the alethiometer out of her bag. She finds the business card that the man gave her with his name and address, and Lyra and Will make a plan to steal the alethiometer back. Their first step is visiting Sir Charles's house on a reconnaissance mission. Sir Charles shows them the alethiometer, but says he'll only give it back to them if they can retrieve a knife that is currently in the possession of a man in the Tower of Angels in Chigatsa. In Chapter 8, The Tower of Angels, Will and Lyra are dropped back at the window by Sir Charles and head back to the Tower of Angels in Chigatsa. Lyra tells Will of the young man she saw up in the tower, and they try to find a way in using Pan as a scout. Finding no easy entrance, they decide just to go in the front and climb up to reach the top, stopping as they go to observe the young man, Angelica's brother, Tulio, and at the top, they find Giacomo Perdisi, the current bearer of the titular subtle knife. They are then attacked by Tulio. Will bests Tulio in an intense scuffle and throws him down the stairwell. 
Julia flees, and Will realises that he is in fact a few digits down. Lyra <laughs> tends to his wounds before deciding to take him to Paradisi for um, further help. Paradisi cleans and dresses the wounds using antiseptic cream, which seems somewhat magical to him, whilst Lyra sees the effects of the spectres on an adult for the first time as Tulio is attacked. Tulio's siblings declare they will kill Lyra and Will for what they did, and then Lyra's attention turns once again to Will. Paradisi informs Will that he is the new bearer, showing him the mark of the bearer, which is the same missing fingers as Will has now lost, before teaching him how to use the knife to open windows and the traditional rules of the knife. Paradisi then warns the children about Sir Charles and sends them on their way as he prepares to end his life before the spectres get to him. Lyra and Will leave the tower and resolve to go back and steal the alethiometer from Sir Charles. And that did read a little bit like um, a sort of synopsis of Hamlet or <laughs> something similar. <laughs> some ghosts, some revenge. Yeah, Tulio, famous Shakespearean character. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, he loved to set shit in Italy, right? Mm. Merchant of Venice. Romeo and Juliet. Uh, yeah. Right. Um, general feelings. I found that these were really long and kind of meaty chapters, but that was definitely for the best here. Like, there's this is the real substance of the whole thing. I loved it. Yeah, my uh, my feelings pretty much the same. I feel like everything before this in the book is set up for what's happening right now, and we're really getting into the good stuff. Like, we're just over halfway, and hey, the knife. It's finally appeared. <laughs> right. <laughs> halfway through a book named after it. <laughs> Ta-da! It kind of happens all at once, right? Because, like, in the previous book, she gets the alethiometer right away, but it's like this thing is like a paperweight. Like it doesn't yeah. do anything. She doesn't understand what it is for a while, but, but they're like, here's a knife. Here's how it works. You're the bearer. I'm out. Like, it's like, Whoa, <laughs> this, wow. <laughs> Although I think it's kind of the opposite because in this book, we see what the knife does before we learn about the knife. Like we see the windows and, Oh, I was yeah. going to say something spoilery, but we, see, you know what I mean? We see them. Yeah. And that sort of thing. And then we find out, oh, it's the knife that does that. I guess what you mean is, like, we feel the effect of the knife before we get the knife. Yes. Would you say that that feeling is subtle? (laughs) Nice. (laughs) No, knife. (laughs) I mean, yes, puns. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was the stuff that like had me the most plugged in was all the Lyra and Will stuff. I really like all the world building that goes on with, you know, with the supporting characters like Lee and Serafina, but it's like the, you know, the fight over the knife and all of Will's stuff of coming into his initiation and learning how to use it. That's like the most exciting stuff. I think in, in the series, it's like one of the peak moments, I think. So it's like very cool to hit this. Mm hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, All the Will and Lyra stuff in this section was really great. I thought the Lee stuff was okay, and then I was pretty bored by all the witches. I was really happy to see that um, they didn't do a classic Rocky montage scene where he was training for months and months to use this knife. (laughs) It was just like, yeah, it's kind of got a knack to it. You'll pick it up as you go along. Uh, I'm out, guys. See ya. (laughs) Yeah, like literally, he's like, I'm going to go kill myself now. Have a good time. (laughs) 
I wouldn't be surprised if he just jumped off the roof, like flipping the bird as he fell. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, like 10, 10 pounds, I guess, says that's what they do in this series. They have him jump. Be so much cooler. Because that'll be, yeah, a lot more visually interesting than... If yeah, you I got flip the bird with two fewer fingers, it would be hard to know that you're doing that and not just like pointing or something. <laughs> not only is it visually compelling, but it's pretty easy to do stunt-wise. So I feel like that's a, a very good intersection. I feel like, like you just said, yeah, they should do that because it'll be interesting. But you said in such a way they gave them such shade. <laughs> like, it's cheap, guys. You can do it. <laughs> so if you're listening, Bad Wolf, then... Uh... <laughs> I mean, I'm, Hi. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they've already filmed all this, right? Yeah, I think they yeah. have. Okay. It can be retconned. It's fine. There's flashback in the season <laughs> three. Uh, so everyone's favorite part. I really liked all of the stuff with Sir Charles. Um, in the section, I think Pullman is addressing class in our worlds and in academia in a way um, that is kind of like contrasting with how it functions in Lyra's world um, and is like trying to be some like light commentary, I guess. Um, I thought the image of like two preteens showing up at this fancy house to like randomly talk to this lord and then like actually getting an audience with him, that was really fun. Um, I like that he lives in a named house. I'm like, I don't know. I find the concept of named houses like kind of hilarious and silly. There's, well, I don't know. I live in kind of a wealthy area. Um, and I hate a lot of the people around me. And there's there's one house nearby that actually like is a named house. And every time I walk past it, I'm just like, fuck you. What do you think this is? Like, you're not in England. Um, and so this that uh, this section of the book kind of made me think of that. Um, I like how Will and Lyra have to like strategize and work together as a team. Uh, and and I think even though. Sir Charles is doing some kind of like classic supervillain gloating. It really works here because he actually needs something from them. Um, so it's like a little bit of a trope, but it works here and he does it really well. Yeah, I agree with all that stuff. I was I was curious to I should have been quiet longer because I feel like uh, so I agree with what you're saying about class. I just feel like um really poorly informed on that issue in like the minds of people Pullman's age writing in the nineties. Cause you have like the same kind of thing going on in Harry Potter to a degree. And like, I wonder if it's something of that generation of British people of that economic class, you know, who, who are like, have something to say about this. Um, and, it, you know, and it just arises in the fiction kind of naturally, or if it's just like he's using it because it's a ready kind of dramatic tension thing. I don't know. It's interesting to me. Yeah, I don't know. I have more to say about it, but I think I want to wait until next week in order yeah, yeah. to not be spoilery about it. Yeah, uh, mine is totally different, although I almost did uh, pick 
Lyra spitting in his face because she just can't say anything, which is fucking great. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. if you can find a rich person, like spit in their fucking face, just do it. <laughs> Although I just found out that apparently in like certain punk circles, spitting is actually like a good thing. Like that's what you're supposed to do when you mm. like the music. I don't know. I was listening to a old episode of Sound Opinions about the Wall. They went into a but, whole thing like, about probably not. Not directly into someone's face. No, true. I feel like it's about how the person you're doing it to takes yeah. it. If they're like, yeah, thanks. Thank you for liking my music. As opposed <laughs> to like, you should be in a guillotine and we should eat you afterwards. That, you know. Yeah. <laughs> thanks, man. Let me return that right back at you. <laughs> I just love the welcoming audience that we have here tonight. Turf to all of you. Turf. <laughs> well yeah and like also getting spit on by bill waters is probably a different experience than roger waters yeah sorry i don't actually know anything about pink floyd i'm just listening to things you might have been thinking of bill withers who was you know famously never in pink floyd sure sure (laughs) roger waters (laughs) ain't no sunshine when you're another brick in the wall I hate that now we've talked about this so long that you won't be able to cut it out and my shame will just be on display for everyone. That's really good. (laughs) I'm glad that I brought that up. Uh, (laughs) My actual favorite thing uh, is actually like a long, well, a longish quote um, that has to do with uh, Ruta Scotty when she's like up there with the angels and they kind of like, they're like, where are you going? I'll follow you. Um, and as I, as I'm rereading his dark materials, something that I'm really noticing and something that I noticed as I was watching the show is just this idea of like embodiment and how deliberate Pullman is of like, your soul is a literal body that has like, you know, can feel pain and it takes up space and like exists in the world, you know? Um, Pantalaimon is like a creature that exists and it's not like a spirit or like some kind of ghost or something, not like the specters are. And so there's like this whole thing about embodiment going on. And I think that this particular passage with her flying through the sky, like really just beautifully illustrates it. Like I like the style of it, but it also like just emphasizes the theme of embodiment really well. So anyway, I'll read it and be quiet. Um, And excuse my uh, problems with reading. I have a reading disability, so try and bear with me. Um, And she rejoiced in her blood and flesh, in the rough pine bark she felt next to her skin, in the beat of her heart and the life of all her senses, and in the hunger she was feeling now, and in the presence of her sweet-voiced blue-throat demon, and in the earth below her and the lives of every creature, plant and animal both, and she delighted in being of the same substance as them, and in knowing that when she died, her flesh would nourish other lives as they had nourished hers. So I just really like that whole thing. That's just a celebration of being in a body and living in a material universe. Yeah, I actually noticed that passage as I was reading, too, and I had to go back and read it a few times. Uh, 
even though I don't really like most of the witch sections, I think that prose is really beautiful. See, I never really thought of it as being good before because Ruta Scatty is a bitch and I hate her. Yes, yeah. And <laughs> I like. I tried not to pay her any attention because I despise her. But yeah, no, when you reading it and not even thinking about Ruta Scatty, it is very nice. I wish you'd given that to Serafina or somebody I liked. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, I'm right mm-hmm. there with you. Yeah, Scotty. Yeah. Yeah, I think I I get what that I get what Pillman's trying to do with Rutuscadi, as in literally looking at the Norse goddess, Skadi, who was the goddess of I want to mm. say ice. She was something like that. Let me let me look that up. Um, but yeah, she was a uh, yeah yeah she was a goddess of winter and hunting and skiing. So she was all about um, revenge and damage and. Uh, justice and independence, all of these really kind of solid, strong feelings. So that's kind of what they're trying to get across with Ruta, but she just kind of comes across as a bit of a bitch. Yep. <laughs> yep. And like, not, not in nice the fun person. way. Yeah. Yeah. I like a good bitch. Like, everybody knows how much I love Mrs. Coulter. Yeah. But that. Yeah. Well. Yeah. She's very different from that. And it's, you know, but like at the same time, I think that particular part right there is like, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. There's like, he's describing the angels and he does another one of these things where he kind of pulls out of the third person narrative voice and gives you like a omniscient narrator. And he tells you like, these angels don't have bodies. They're actually like made of information uh, and blah, 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 blah. She sees bodies because she expects to see bodies. And then we zoom back into her perspective and we kind of live in her body as she's riding on, you know, the pine, the pine bark and the wind blowing through her hair and all that kind of stuff. And so it's like a contrast between the angels who are like these like ideas that are alive somehow. And then Ruta, who is like, embodied and alive and connected to everything around her in a fundamental way that everything around her is also connected to her in a way that the angels just like aren't. Um, yeah. That's it, all really great meaty stuff. And I hate that it's with her because I her, hate yeah. her and I, I hate reading that. about her. <laughs> <laughs> I think it also gives a certain uh, naivete to her. It feels yeah. very much like, she's uh reduced to this child childlike wonder just in, enjoying the world and to the angels that's what she is she is they are unknowably old they are mm, beings mm-hmm. again of structure and information they are you know they look at her and they see something that's only just come to be and they're just going well you know you, oh my sweet summer child you think you know so much and yet here we are and you have no comprehension of what we are and what really is and so, mm-hmm. yeah, it just, it just kind of reinforces that she is still so young to, in the grand scheme of things. And these are so unknowably old. Yeah, that, that passage is patronizing in a way uh, mm. towards her character. And that, that's interesting, yeah, because that happens right before the passage that I read. And so, yeah, I think you're right about that, that it's supposed to illustrate like a, a kind of naive uh, sentiment to her. Yeah. Mm, I don't know. I don't quite see it that way. 
I don't see it that way either, but as I have this all in my least favorite part, I'm going to talk about it then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, we, are, we can talk, I think we've talked about how much we dislike her in every single section so far, and we have so many more podcast episodes of this book to continue talking about how much we hate her. Oh yeah, she's going to do more things that piss me <laughs> off. Yeah, I, we haven't even gotten to the reason why I hate her most of all, so... Ruth Wilson, please hurt Ruta Scardi. Yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> um, my favourite part here definitely is the... It's again, I think the same one that I had last time, which is the scientific parallels between the world of Chigatsa and our world. Like some of the advancements that we have in our era because of relatively open science have led to you know scientific knowledge being widespread. Uh, it's kind of antiseptic ointment, which is basically just Savlon. And it's that they say uh, he treats it like myrrh, you know, incredibly uh, expensive and hard to get. And you know, Will's like, well, it's ridiculous. I can just buy that for like two quid. Um, so it's interesting to just contrast the their world where the all the knowledge is kept in the literal ivory tower um, versus <laughs> our world where whilst covered, you know, whilst hidden behind paywalls and all that sort of thing, it's at least easier to get hold of than the literally people in a literal tower. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that at all. Like when you compare it to Lyra's world, how the magisterium is kind of controlling what is allowed to be known and yeah. who can explore the boundaries of that. And just the regular people just have no idea about it. And then, you know, yeah, comparing it to our world where um, things are much more open. That's really interesting. Uh, so my favorite part is a lot shorter than everybody else's, I suppose. But it's the bit <laughs> where Pantaliman uh, decides to comfort Will after he's lost his fingers. And I like it because I, I feel like a good chunk of the story so far has been about Lyra and Will and how they work together. You know, and we just had a whole bunch of time when they were really not happy with each other. But then, you know, when it counts... They're on each other's side and like they have another line later on or before this, actually, when Will thinks, you know, we have to do this. And then he goes and it is we. And, you know, mm -hmm. they, despite the, them being pissed off or, you know, all these mistakes being made, they understand that they're a team. Mm. And I don't think that that's shown anywhere quite as well as when Pantaliman decides to break the big taboo. It's a really good moment because you even get to see like inside of Lyra's head where she's surprised by it, right? Yeah, and obviously there's a lot more to say about this, but I have it later. Um, yeah. But just for context about one of the reasons I wanted to start this podcast was before the TV show got going and suddenly there was a million His Dark Materials podcasts, there was exactly <laughs> one that I could find. And when they read this chapter, they didn't talk about this at all. They just oh, didn't wow. even mention it. And I was like, this is the biggest fucking thing that happens in this chapter, character-wise. And I was like, whoa, whoa. And I was so <laughs> upset. <laughs> and, yeah. And thus the podcast yeah. was born. <laughs> yes, yes it was. Because I was like, I will fix this mistake. <laughs> the wrong which must be righted. Yeah. Well, if you think about the previous book, too, she had Pantaliman touched by the worker at Balvanger, um, or the he's like one of the doctors, I guess. 
And so that's like the only other interaction like that direct that I can think of between. And then this one just kind of unconsciously happens and it's completely wonderful. Right. Yes. Um, so it's I have it like later huge. during the discussion. So I, I, don't know, I can go into yeah. it all here if we would rather. No, that's no, no, that, but that's a really good. Now my uh, pick seems dumb is what I'm saying. Um, oh, it is a good huge too. thing. Uh, so least favorite part. Um, I'll start because it's rude of fucking scatty. I hate that bitch. Yep. Yep. <laughs> uh, my very specifically in this chapter, I hate the bit. I hate her whole dealing with the angels. Like here are these beings that it's the first time that we are seeing them in this series. And <clears throat> I think I'm pretty sure. And yeah. we're seeing them through this arrogant bitch's eyes. <laughs> And she flies up to them and she's all, tell me everything. And they kind of, you know, they tell her enough to get her to follow them. And all these things. And then when they're approaching the fortress, she's like, and you will be my honor guard. And I'm like, oh, my God, I want to punch you in the face. Because even if even if these were just like regular beings who could fly, like things that you would consider equal to Rudisketti, which arguably they are. Let's not get into that. Whatever. Um like, arguably, they're just beings from a different world. So, like, that's still just, what a thing to say to these people you've just met. Like, <laughs> you can be my servants. Like, fuck off. I hate her so much. I hate her. I hate any time she opens her mouth. I hate, she's just a bitch. I, uh, Their response, I... though, is literally just, lol, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm gonna let Caitlin rant for me because she's more effective at it right now. Uh, I'm gonna save my uh, my Ruta Scotty rant for later. Uh, uh, I hate how and we're supposed to think she's a good person. Like at least Mrs. Coulter, she's evil, and we're supposed to think she's evil. But we're supposed to think Ruta's on the side of quote unquote good or whatever it is in this book. No, mm-hmm. fuck off. Please fall off your stupid pine branch and die on the mountains. <laughs> Jesus. <Yeah. laughs> hey, guys, do you have any tigers for me to kill? I mean, I don't know. Uh, yeah, maybe I will yeah. say a little bit of something here, which is just that I think she's more of a plot device than an actual character. And I think that's where. Oh, yeah, she's. Yeah, that's where a lot yeah, of her 100%. problems come from. But also what little character she does have is not good either. So. Her whole point is to link us from Serafina and then get us to Lord Asriel. She does not exist to be a character. That is true and is no fault of her own, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. So, like, um, part of the problems are with her character and part of the problems are, like, bigger than that. Yeah. She still sucks. But I still hate her. Yeah, yeah. yeah, She still sucks. Exactly. (laughs) Do you think that that could be rehabilitated in the show? I mean, mean, that's a total speculation. But, like, genuinely, I hope they just cut her out. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. If yeah, if you were like in charge of it, you'd be like just she's not there. Yeah. This that's would be Serafina or something. Yeah. Or no, cuz because a show can just can just cut over. Mm-hmm. And it's not mm-hmm. a big oh, deal. Oh, sure. You know, angels, we don't we yeah. don't need a link, you know? Yeah. We can just yeah, yeah, yeah. be like, "Oh, there's some angels up there in the sky from the Chitagatsi people," and then we can just follow the angels. We don't need Ruta. The book mm-hmm. didn't even really need her. That's kind of her problem, really. She's not needed. But guys, remember, she fucked Lord Asriel, and that makes her super cool. I think it makes Asriel cool is part of the problem, too. 
I think like, it calls yes. into question his judgment. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> All right, I can I can stop ranting. Somebody else go. My only complaint is that I find out of like all of the info dumps, I find Lee's to be the the most boring for me. Um, it's cool to get more from his demon. I think this is the most we get out of Hester, uh, like since ever. And so we get to know Hester and we get to know a little bit more about like the culture of his vocation and stuff. But really, there's like almost no conflict here until all of a sudden there's like a sleeper agent that he has to have a, a very quick duel with. And then he gets mad at the guy for dying. And it's like, I don't know. The whole thing is not like if you compare this in my mind, I was comparing this to like the Serafina thing where she's like standing in a room full of her enemies and she's invisible and has to like maintain her concentration while also gathering intelligence. Like there's a lot of tension there. And you're like paying attention to the politics of the people in the room. Like, it's all very interesting. And this is like, it's realistic. It's interesting to find out about the world, but it's just kind of slow. There's not any conflict built into it until all of a sudden there is. I agree. I don't know. For the most part. But I also think that the witches interviewing the specter attack survivors is even more boring. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I'm that. more interested in that because it's not in the world that was the whole previous book. Like, I feel mm. like we just stepped backwards with Lee's. Mm. And, and so when we go to Chittagatse, it's like, oh, what are these specters? And what are those are angels in the sky? Like, there's a lot of new stuff mm. happening. OK. <clears throat> and and so I'm like, oh, this is more interesting. But yeah, you're right. It also does not have any tension. There's not they don't have a fight with the specters. They don't have to like, you know, they're not being held hostage by the people they're talking to or something like that. It's just a conversation, like literally. May I just step in quickly with a, a point that I want to make? Because I think it's an important world building point. Um, yeah. Both earlier in the uh, summaries uh, when uh, Anya referred to this dude as a spy and just now you said he was a sleeper agent. He is neither of those things. He is very openly the church's agent there, making sure that if they have any discoveries that aren't good, he says, no, you can't talk about that. He's not oh. hiding. Oh, he's, I thought he was. No, no, no. This is not, he's not hiding. This is like an official uh, thing that happens in every research station, laboratory, whatever. Everybody has to have a church agent to be like, no, that doesn't work with the with the Bible. Fuck it. You can't you right. can't talk about that. Ah, you see, it's like Dominic Cummings being in the independent scientific advice thing for the UK government. I don't know oh, what any of that means. Literally a political but yes. plant. <laughs> okay. This is yeah. A, yeah. that sounds but like terrible. COVID reference. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so they kicked reference. out Neil Ferguson and yep. replaced him yeah. with. Well, no, no. Dominic Cummings was always on there, but this is this is exactly oh. the same point: is that there's a political person on, you know, in this research establishment, in this, um, you know, in this whatever they are advisory board, they can be whatever, and he's there to make sure that the that they toe the line. Yeah, you right. know, it's it's a very exactly. obvious and um, bold exhibition of their power they're saying no we've got someone there and then if you discover something no you didn't 
And and remember when Lee brought up dust, everybody went quiet. And like he said, he could tell all the attention was on this dude. I see. Yeah. So everybody oh. there knows who he is and why he's there. And it, he's not hiding. Yeah, I guess you're. That's a good clarification. You're right. I guess yeah. it's like uh, Lee wasn't necessarily aware of all of those dynamics. And the narrator makes it yeah. a little bit clear that that's what's happening, but I guess I wrote the summary more from, like, Lee's perspective, and I was just trying to yeah, that's be fair. concise. But you're right, that was misleading. Yeah, I was actively confused by that um, being the case. Like, I was aware that there is a person with that job, and that that was his job, <clears throat> but I didn't, I just thought maybe he was in plain clothes with a ring on his finger, and that was, and just everybody just knew, like, oh, there's an undercover cop over there, Lee, you didn't know that. Um, oh. That's what I, I thought mean, was going on. All of that is true, except he's not undercover. Right. Okay. Yeah. And presumably in the TV show, he won't be in plain clothes. He'll be in their uniform. But I yeah, think in yeah. the book, he is just in plain clothes. Okay. Well, what I can't work out from that is whether he is implied to also be a scientist, just a um, magisterium scientist, or whether he's implied to purely be a political figure. What I got from it was not a scientist. He's just there with his Bible or whatever saying, no, that one doesn't work. Throw it out. That seems yeah. like a raw deal. Like, I mean, being stuck in a tiny station in the Arctic with five other people is like cool if you really care about the stars. But man, like he probably got the short straw somewhere. I don't know. It depends yeah. how you feel, because in a way he's in charge. And if you like power... That might be like a small way to have it. Okay, that's fair. But y your point works like, yeah, it would be boring as shit if he didn't care. He's excited to kill himself, <laughs> so I don't think he's happy. <laughs> <laughs> There's like two people in these chapters who are like, yes, I will die now. What the fuck? <laughs> Guys, this is not okay. <laughs> yeah. I always felt that the scene with Dr. Malone and the police where... Um, Lyra slips up and gives the game away. It just, I feel like more could have been done with it. The the police don't feel, I mean, we don't, the implication is that they're not really police, I feel, but even, even then, like, they don't feel particularly scary. It doesn't feel, it doesn't make sense, really. It could make sense if they'd, you know, if they were the police, then they'd take her in and question her there in their own you know in their own place they take them down to the station so they're not the police but then they're nowhere near menacing enough to be not the, to be you know church agents so like it just it was fine and like it was a little bit a little bit kind of tense but it, i felt there could have been more there okay i have mm -hmm. two questions first since you've been to oxford i don't know um <clears throat> sorry <coughs> um, since you've been to Oxford and have obviously like attended some universities in the UK, do uh, universities there have the same kind of like campus police that universities no. in the US do? Because like most universities no. in the US have their own police force that is in many Armed. ways much better than the actual police force because... Uh, at least in my experience, they seem like they're there to keep order, but they are also there to protect the students and they don't necessarily see 
the students as like a threat in the same way that the city police see everybody as a threat and also like black lives matter it, just to give you a clue of where we are in real life time. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was going to wait. Date this. <laughs> yeah. I was going to wait until we got into the problematic section to give our date stamp. <clears throat> but just so everybody knows, we took a bit of a break because <clears throat> Anya was sick and it's June 21st now and things are a little bit different. Happy but solstice. Still terrible. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was yeah. yesterday. But we're yeah. all okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Just yeah. fine, thank you. Yeah. Anyway, during um, during com- if we're going to be talking about the police and how menacing they are or aren't, I feel like it was necessary to bring that up. Um, and also, would you be happier if they had more guns? Because that could be another way to solve that problem. That's how we do it in the U.S. <laughs> no. When dear when you God, were- no. <laughs> When you were describing this university police force, I was like, this is the most American fucked up shit I've ever heard. (laughs) What are you talking about? Schools have their own police force. What? So we have security and security are nominally, I mean, actually, on the particular campus that I'm on right now, there there was a little time when we had armed police. But for the vast majority of the time, if you found armed police on a university campus, something is going seriously wrong on that campus right that second. Well, like we don't, there are, there are police, there are security guards. Interesting. Or porters. I'm, I mean, particularly in Oxford, the porters kind of fulfil that sort of role to an extent, especially in the halls of residence. Yeah, I mean... Um, can- and, and they encounter the porter. Kate, so you say that, like, having the university's own police force is super fucked up. And, like, I understand how it feels that way from the outside perspective. But, like, honestly, right, yeah. it makes it a lot safer because the university police are, like, way better than the actual police. And the fact that you have a university police means that the actual police, like, don't go there as much. That's I still say, fucked up. I mean, yeah. yes, that's still yeah, fucked up. Yeah, that is still fucked up. But overall, it's like a net positive, maybe. I don't know. <clears throat> I I will say uh, America has a completely different university college um, culture mm. than than Canada's. I assume than England <clears throat> does too. Like, uh, like living on campus here just isn't that common. Mm. I see. So, so there's less of just like... An entire well, and also your drinking age is lower, so you don't have like yes. an entire population of like eighteen to nineteen year olds trying to illegally get drunk in like a very small area, and like that whole no, we cat have cat and mouse game no. that goes on. No, a lot of our universities have pubs on the campus. Yeah, because Same. because obviously because everybody's drinking. I don't know. Again, even my campus, which has what a hundred people on it, we still have a pub. It's only open well, three days a week. That's just England. We still have one. That, that's, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. If there's a grouping of like twenty people, there's a pub and a church. It's actually the collective noun shop. for a group of Englishmen. Is a pub a pub, <laughs> a pub of yeah. Englishmen? <laughs> yeah. yeah. What do you call a collection of Scot- uh, Scottish people? Drunk. Oh. <laughs> Great. <laughs> just or trying fun. to offend everybody. <laughs> As much as possible here. <laughs> back on topic a little yeah, bit. I did want to say about that scene, I don't like it either, but for completely different reasons. Okay. I feel like it's the one scene, or and this is also why I actually think it's a little necessary to have it, 
is it's a scene where we see Lyra lying and she thinks she's doing a good job because she doesn't know this world. But as somebody yeah. who does know the mm-hmm. world, you're reading it and you're just cringing because you can see her fucking up. Like mm-hmm. she refers to a computer as that screen. Only my d- uncle or dad or whatever doesn't have one of those. I'm like, everybody, every scientist is going to have a computer, Lyra. Stop talking. Stop talking. <laughs> oh, my God. You know, and. Right. And I feel like if you think of it that way, there is just a tad more tension because the reader knows she's fucking up. But I, I can absolutely see what you're saying, too. Yeah, no, I, that is a good point. I hadn't thought of it like that. Yeah, I feel like it skips out on Dr. Malone too quickly, too. Yes. Like she feels important. We talked about her last time. And then it's just like, whoop, we're, just, we're, we're done. Mm-hmm. Like we put her down and we hop right into the car and then... You know, things go off in that direction. And like it, it, there is something I agree that there's a lot of potential there that it feels like it just didn't get realized. Yeah. I mean, this isn't the last we see of Dr. Malone. Oh, no, no, I know. But spoilers. (laughs) Yeah. But like in the scene, it just feels like, oh, Dr. Malone again. And oh, we're back to this. And it just like that just stops. And, you know, then we go all the way back to the other world and we, get the knife and it, when you think about it like in terms of what we read it's weird it feels like it's setting something up and it just doesn't go anywhere well, she, could, I, she could have just got mugged yeah. or left it on the bus and it would have done the same thing right exactly yeah it, that's what i mean that it brings in dr malone and then it just goes nowhere it's weird I guess it doesn't feel that way to me because it is setting stuff up with dr malone and i know that because i've read the book so i just don't i yeah. And I, there's no way I can remember if I felt that way the first time I read this book when I was 13. So, <laughs> I've like I've read, I've I've read them all before. I know where it's going. It's just that it doesn't like it'll come. I know it'll come back to her, and it's all all of that side of thing. Maybe it's just because of some of the other books that I've been reading, such as the new Philip Pullman uh, Book of Dust series, but. It feels like they do very similar scenes very differently and it works better. Mm. Gotcha. Well, I can say I read this not for the actual first time, but like basically in terms of what I my brain remembered for the first time a couple months ago. And it didn't feel weird to me that Mary was missing. But I was also kind of just like racing through it um, and like really into it. Oh, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I mean, we're kind of like exaggerating. I'm not saying like this is terrible writing or something like that. But in terms of like lost potential or like weird signals that you're getting, like when I'm thinking about this, like, I don't know, this is going to be a weird reference that Caitlin could follow me on this. But it's like, you know, like at one point in the Lord of the Rings books, the all of the characters, when they leave on their quest, they don't have any weapons or anything. And then they go through this very surreal experience of like some ghosts try to kill them. And then they come out of that with with swords, but then they don't use them for a long time. And it's like, OK, what are these swords for? And then like three books later, the sword gets used in a way that is very dramatic and cool. And you're like, oh, you're setting something up a thousand pages in advance. Like, it's weird. <laughs> Okay, yeah, I go. I go. What you're saying, Chekhov's gun like you on can a do it, You can set scale. it. 
you can set it up. Yeah, exactly. Like you can set things up and then you can make them feel paid off immediately. And then you bring them back later and you're like, oh, that's cool that like Anya remembered the hammer. Like I thought that thing was done, you know. I don't know. I guess it felt natural to me because I was so invested in Lyra's point of view and it makes sense that she would want to go back to see Mary and then it just like the pacing of that chapter I feel like is pretty fast and so it all makes sense and then you end up at Sir Charles's house and so like I don't know it didn't bother me I can absolutely see where it would I tried to back you up I appreciate (laughs) it thank you we're not saying you're wrong yeah I'm not (laughs) saying yeah I'm just saying it worked for me yeah. Sure. It's fine. It's okay. <laughs> also, fuck the police. <laughs> yeah, that too. Yeah. Um, Speaking of, uh, any problematics? Nope. I honestly, I honestly didn't notice any in the chapters this time. But as we were just saying, you know, it's June twenty first. I did maybe want to mention that maybe some time, uh, some uh, what's the word? Whatever. Some authors have said some things on the internet recently. Oh, and maybe yeah. oh, right. Philip Pullman I felt, has gotten pulled in. I felt and so maybe validated that we talked at length about Philip Pullman's issues with trans people in our pilot, Yeah, given everything that happened with she who will yeah. not be named. Yeah. <laughs> so... I just wanted to say that obviously our stance hasn't changed from what we talked about before, trans rights, etc. I said that in a very blow-offy way, but I'm being 100% serious here. Fuck that bitch. Uh, I think we should all just start referring to her as she who will not be named. Like, that is the best way to deal with her. The problem with that is you're using her own thing there still. Like, I don't know. Whatever. Her. Because that is something that she made popular. Well, yeah. yeah. So it's they're like using her own weapon against her. I don't know. I I guess. I guess. I guess. Anyways, uh, I just wanted to make sure that everybody knew that even even Philip Pullman is sort of he's he's ended up on the not good side of this line. Not quite as far I don't, as uh, she who will not be named. It seems like but, more. It's the same thing that we talked about during the the pilot it's that like he's trying it's somehow still ambiguous he's trying so hard to straddle that fence and and make everybody happy that he's just like racked himself right but that's still not great no 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 Uh, yeah but it's but it's differently bad or it's like bad in a distinctive way like if you're not willing to stand up against badness you are reinforcing that badness but that's different than just being firmly on the side of turfs yeah which no one should i don't even know that he's neutral so much as he is like policing tone he's like policing tone on both sides he's like hey hey, hey, be nice about how you say this and like be less confusing and and blah 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 and it's like that is not the issue (laughs) Like, You're the only please, one that's no, confused here, please. sir. Yeah, I just wanted to bring that up and make sure that everybody knew that we knew and that we weren't great. It wasn't great. It wasn't great. But we're in the middle of this podcast now. And hey, aren't we thankful we're not doing a Harry Potter podcast? Oh, my God. How the fuck would you keep doing it? Just stop. <laughs> just, no. I did want to say 
last time I talked about some stuff that I wasn't that I knew that I would talk about at some point in the future where I was talking about like scholasticism uh, and the way that medieval people thought about things. And um, and I think I said something along the lines of like Aristotle uh, believed that like things want to go up in the air, you know, like uh, fire wants to go up and that rocks want to fall down and that the earth wants to uh, pull the moon towards it and things like that. Uh, which I just wanted to say when I looked into it more is not correct. So I don't want to put false information out there. Uh, Aristotle did not believe that, but people who came after him and kind of picked up his stuff said things like that, that, you know, objects have intention and they kind of conflated, uh, his ideas about, um, what is the word that I can't remember that is like our thing. That comes oh, from Aristotle. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, God, what is it? It's it's the middle thing on the bingo card. Uh, right. No, uh, not, ep- not, ep- uh, not epidemiology. Mm-mm. Oh, Christ, what is it? Oh. Teleology? Teleology? <laughs> teleology. There we yeah. go. Yeah. Teleology. Yes. yes. <laughs> I forgot it. I either. went to go let um, my cat out of the room, and I came back, and I was like, I can't tell if they're being sarcastic or not. No. <laughs> really can't. So people like, and and me included, conflated teleology with like intent. And so even though rocks have a teleological purpose to fall down to the earth, that does not mean that they want to fall down. They don't want anything uh, necessarily in Aristotle's model. People took his model and then inserted intention into it because when it comes to people, we do have intentions and wants and desires, and those are aligned with our teleology. And so, like, you, you know, you want to be a parent, and that is because you were made to be a parent or something like that. You know what I mean? Like, your intentions are aligned with your purpose, and so you would then turn around and be like, rocks want to fall down because that is their purpose. But you're kind of like... Um, misapplying the concept there. And and I was guilty of that, and I accused Aristotle of it, and I only want to accuse him of the correct things for which he was very wrong, um, and that wasn't one of them. So Very post-hoc, I go prop to hoc there. But he, yeah. like, do we, we can't say for certain that rocks don't want to go downwards. They might really we want to. We will talk about that. <laughs> we will end up talking about that very thing. Excellent. But... I was I was just gonna say, Francis, maybe maybe don't encourage. Yeah. No, but it's <laughs> fine. not in this not in this particular episode, but eventually we'll okay. talk about that. All right, so uh, science. I think I'm the only one who hasn't written anything in this section, so have at it, folks. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's the first one on this? Uh- yeah, so I mean, the thing that I really noticed here in the discussion with Lee. Uh, you know, at, at being at the North Pole and everything and everybody's out of work because like the environment is changing. Right. There's like a there's like a giant hole in the sky and it's belching out tropical air into the Arctic and it's messing everything up. And to me, like this comes out of the 90s. And I remember the hole yeah. in the ozone layer, you know, around the Arctic and global warming and all of the fears around that. And I was like, this seems like a obvious analogy but i don't 100 percent oh, okay. I, remem- <laughs> I remember noticing that when i was reading it in the 90s 
and being like, oh, hey, the ice is melting and there's a hole in the sky. That's like what's actually happening, but in a magical way. I didn't think about the ozone layer thing, but I definitely got the parallels to uh, climate change and global warming. I think part of that is just that, at least in North America, we don't really talk about the ozone hole anymore. Although in Australia, I think because the ozone layer is still a lot thinner there, they it's like still much more in the public consciousness than it is in other places in the world. Yeah, if I read this for the first time now, I would probably just equate it with, you know, general climate change. But reading it in the 90s was like, yes, this is the ozone, yeah. specifically. Mm -hmm. Well, we've yeah. made so much progress on the ozone layer, you know, banning uh, CFCs from refrigeration um, and things like that. Like, it's... the it's it is fixing itself because we put in some regulations to stop it yeah, most mostly yeah <laughs> but uh we we seem to be completely incapable of doing that for uh the, the rest of the whole climate change thing <laughs> except yeah. except britain went uh completely coal free for a month now i think oh really oh yeah. that's, that's cool. cool yeah yeah um, i mean is that a covid thing yes exactly yeah yeah but they're they're looking they're, they're looking to decommission them anyway and it's amazing like we've got so much more wind power particularly uh and tidal power that it's becoming they're becoming not necessary which is great that's good uh, all right this isn't the fixed climate change podcast no <laughs> every podcast should be that that's true okay that's fair that's fair <laughs> francis do you want to talk about nuclear fission Fusion? Fission? So they have a story, and it's sort of related to a traditional story about the uh, the discovery of the atom, or the, the first theorization of what the atom is, which was, I can't remember who it is off the, off the top of my head at all, but I think it was some Greek guy, it's usually some Greek guy, uh, basically cut things in half, and then cuts them in half again, and then cuts and cuts and cuts and cuts and cuts. And cuts. And defined the atom as when you couldn't cut it in half anymore, the indivisible unit. And they tell a very similar yeah. story where they go go through and uh, with the with the subtle knife they cut things in half again and again and again, till they get down to this indivisible unit, and then they cut that in half. And that is the problem. That is what they say released all the spectres. Now, this is interesting, and I th I find this is a an analogy for nuclear nuclear fission because that is literally splitting the atom and uh i saw it as the we discovered uh nuclear fission or we achieved nuclear fission in kind of the 40s and it could have been something which was an incredible force for good it could have changed everything for the better but bad people did bad things with it and humanity paid a terrible price for that. So due to a few irresponsible unit users, this turned from a technology to be feared, uh, well, this turned into a technology to be feared, which brings death to thousands, instead of a tool which could actually have made everything better. Climate change could have been a much, much lesser thing had we adopted nuclear and used it properly for the right purpose. But we didn't. And now yeah. there's a there's real problems and we did also do the whole bombing thing 
which is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And so I, I see the spectres as sort of an analogy for the problems with nuclear fission, particularly. So while you were... That's really interesting. Uh, Go ahead. While you were talking, I looked it up. It was the Greek philosopher Leucippus of Miletus and his student Democritus of Abdera in the 5th century BC came up with the, uh, the yeah. first atomic theory. There was lots of different schools because there was like one school that was like nothing exists except numbers, um, which is interesting because they might be right. Uh, it's all a hologram. Something that just occurred to me while you were saying that that I think is interesting is that, you know, we like we had this potential for an atomic age in the West, like you were saying, and kind of coincident with its failure was a kind of culture of appropriation that happened like throughout the 60s, 70s and 80s, I would say, mm -hmm. um, where instead of kind of the West developing its own culture or like continuing to evolve its own culture, we really like turned to other cultures, especially white culture did this, turned to like other um, more vulnerable cultures and just appropriated their stuff. And if you think about it, that is what um, Chittagatse does. Right. Mm. Like with this cream and stuff. Right. They're, they stop inventing things. They stop making things and just start taking other people's stuff and being like advanced culture. Like, look what we did by our invention. We took other people's stuff. And now look how great our life is because of that. We have refrigerators and stuff. They didn't make refrigerators like they didn't get there. They took them, mm. you know. Yeah, that's a good point. I haven't thought about that at all. So the West is a cultural parasite, right? <laughs> you heard it here <laughs> Can't first, Can't live up folks. to its own potential. <laughs> I mean, I saw that whole thing as also like an allusion to string theory a little bit. There's like these rolled up dimensions in string theory. And there's one string theorist. I can't find it, but I know that I've read it for sure that when he talks about like these like these. I don't know. It's confusing because like we live in a three dimensional universe and to imagine more spatial dimensions is mind-bending. Like, even if you add one, I'm like, what does that even mean? But there's, like, lots of them in string theory. But anyway, the way that they deal with that is to roll them up and they compare it to, like, a garden hose. Um, and so you would, like, when you roll up a garden hose, there's this whole other element to the hose that's on the inside, right? But all you deal with is, like, the outside of it. And this is kind of like the subtle knife opened up that hose and then inside was like ghosts <laughs> or, uh, you know, like there was a, there was a scientist definitely read this somewhere that was like the, these dimensions could be filled with entire other worlds that have different ways of doing physics that we wouldn't even understand. And it would be like cutting open the garden hose to find like centipedes and beetles inside. Like it would, you know, there's stuff in there. It's not just like, a rolled up tube or something. It's like whole other stuff. Speaking so I of, feel like that is there. Speaking of, that's a very good uh, name for this particular episode, a hose pipe full of ghosts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing uh, that I wanted to talk about in this section was basically uh, there's uh, a bit in when we're with Lee in chapter six, um, where the people in the Arctic are talking about how 
Um, the Earth's magnetic field has changed dramatically in the past, and the Earth's axis has moved. And that's why areas that were temperate before have become icebound now. Um, and so there's all this evidence of older civilizations that are hidden under the ice. Um, and so obviously, like, their world is not our world, but I thought it might make sense to just talk a little bit about the science of that. So, you know, Francis did a little bit of digging into this, uh, the stuff about the magnetic fields changing. Mm. Yeah, there was, um, I, I remember hearing about this, this kind of came back up in the news not that long ago, as a few papers came out predicting that there will be another flip and talking about how it will break all GPS, because it would, really. It, it causes a lot of problems. <laughs> Um, so that's not just like the magnetic poles moving a little bit. It's uh, uh, north and south yeah. completely swapping. What kind of happens, what it looks like it hap- what it looks like happens is that it kind of all gets scrambled for a while and then it can reassert itself the other way around. Uh, um, but there's weird. there's a while basically if you if you look at uh, geomagnetic maps, then you do see that you've got the kind of general classical, poles that you'd imagine and there's a lot of kind of scrambling around the middle as well uh and then on some of the simulations that i was looking at it all becomes just a lot more scrambled north is not really north and south is not really south and then yeah it, it can reassert itself the other way around it was actually found by a geologist who discovered that some of the rocks their polar orientation was the opposite to where they should be considering i was gonna where say sitting. is that is that like the way they know that is from looking at rocks that they can tell were formed yes. at a certain age and then look at Precisely. how the metals in those rocks are like pointing or whatever. Aligned. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly that. <laughs> um, and yeah, there's, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that it's shifted a lot of times before. The statistic I read was 183 reversals over the last 83 million years. Oh my the God. The most recent one being is about <laughs> 780,000 years ago. But... Luckily, there's no evidence to show any link between those occurrences and mass extinction events, so that's a plus, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Just because all our g- GPS will be fucked, like the rest will be fine. As well, I mean, we're I, not traveling right now, anyways. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Flip it, see what happens. <laughs> yeah, this is the perfect time yeah. to test it out. Oh man, hear that, God? Just you know, go wild for a bit. No one might. It'll yeah. You know, not enough is happening, to be <laughs> yeah, honest. Let's exactly. why not? Let's just fucking do it. I wouldn't be surprised I mean, by now. Wow. Yeah. I was just gonna say, if any if it was gonna happen any year in our lifetime, it would be this fucking year. <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe I feel like it's gonna be one of those things where like every year since twenty sixteen has just gotten substantially worse. And so I that's gonna be like January third, twenty twenty one. Just like as a right, big old right. fuck you to everyone being like, yeah. no, 2021 Zoop. is going to be when it starts getting better. Yeah. All of the birds start flying in the wrong direction. <laughs> Just backwards. Like, what is happening? <laughs> yeah. <All of> the-, <laughs> the geese fly backwards to South Hulk? America. You're like, what? Penguins and polar bears do coexist. Right. <laughs> When I was uh, younger and I first heard that the like the poles could swap, I imagined like the whole fucking earth swapping. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, like it flipped over. Yeah, like right. the earth, like the North Pole was physically where the South Pole is That's now. Funny. God and just spins it, it took like me a, a dreidel. T- 
yeah, yeah, exactly. It took me a long time. And that's why I figured it would be such a big deal. You know, like, sure. <laughs> anyway, I mean, to be fair, magnetic fields funny. is a pretty hard concept for like young kids. Yeah. I will say when I was um, when I was a teenager in the 90s, I went to a fundamentalist uh, church and part of the doctrine of this church was that at the moment where Adam and Eve uh, sinned and the world, you know, like messed up, it was perfect, like the earth was paradise and then it became imperfect because of sin, that at that moment, the earth had been perfectly up and down. But then the axis tilted as a result. This was part of the doctrine. This is not in the Bible. So there were no seasons, um, the seasons before happened. original exactly. sin. That's right. Now you see, what really happened is God, you know, he went up to his desk where the globe was sitting perfectly. <laughs> he tripped over, he stubbed his toe, he was like, bugger. And there's like, oh, um, you, you, you guys, you guys did this. Uh, fuck off down to... You, know. <laughs> you ate from this apple. They're like, what are you talking about? He's like, who told you you were naked? We're like, what's naked? He's like, get out. <laughs> Knocking over my fucking globe. <laughs> Shit. I feel like this is very on brand for what Philip Pullman would want our discussion to be about. <laughs> very critical. Excellent. Um, That's the best one. But speaking of seasons... Um, so in terms of the Earth's axis, um, which is obviously different from the magnetic fields, um, so the tilt of the Earth is the angle between the rotational axis of the Earth and the orbital axis of the Earth. So the orbital axis is um, the axis on which the Earth orbits around the Sun, and then the rotational axis is um, the axis in which the Earth is spinning itself. Um, and so currently there is a 23 and a half degree difference uh, between these two axes. Um, and so that's what generates our seasons. Uh, and uh, historically this, or not historically, but like geologically, this has varied uh, between 22 and 24 and a half degrees. Um, and it kind of wobbles a bit in cycles that last 40,000 years. Um, wow. And so changes in this angle um, actually do affect the seasons and can influence long-term climate cycles. So basically when the angle is more extreme, um, we have more extreme seasons. And when the angle is um, shallower, we have less extreme seasons because um, the angle of the sunlight is more consistent year-round. Um, and so basically when the seasons are... Uh, milder and less extreme, we get more ice buildup because the summers aren't as hot. And so even though, like, like basically just when you're, like, balancing out uh, summer and winter, um, e having, like, much colder winters can't really compensate for the fact that more of the ice is melting during the summer. Um, and all of that is to say that this is cool, but also not an excuse for climate change denial. Like these cycles are often used by climate change denialists um, to argue that what we're currently um, experiencing on Earth is just like natural cycles caused by these geological and astronomical influences. Um, and that is not true. What we have witnessed in the past 
couple hundred years is absolutely due to human carbon emissions um, and cannot be explained by the cycle, although the cycle is pretty cool. Hear that, Ben Shapiro? Just stop. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I did want to complain about a trauma in my past that was inflicted on me in high school physics um, because when, like we talked about the ozone layer earlier in the 90s and how this is like, you know, like Caitlin said, like, oh, this is obviously this thing. Um, When they talk about structures being revealed by the ice going away, that was a thing in the 90s that was in the news. Um, In Antarctica, they they were like starting to see the continent in a way that you couldn't see before, you know, because of um, the ice being in the way. And some of those structures that were in the continent were seen by people as like, this is clearly buildings, like they're straight lines and blah, 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 blah. And like, I don't think that that has any credibility. It's like the kind of, you know, like ancient aliens kind of people Um, or like the face in Mars. Do you know what you guys know what that is? You know, like you see like, you know, in the clouds, like that's an elephant. It's not an elephant. It's, you know, it's just the shape of a thing. Um, But it was very... Among like fringe science people at which in the nineties, like, remember this is like X-Files, right? This is like, there are aliens out there and the government is lying to you about it. Like this was part of that whole vibe. And I was forced to read this book in my science class because my science teacher was one of these fringe people who like actually spent several weeks teaching us about how Antarctica was Atlantis. Oh my God. And, And yeah. Oh, wow. Jesus Christ. Only in America. <laughs> and w- the book is called the, the Earth's Shifting Crust by this guy named Charles Hapgood. And you go like, what this hack? What are you talking about? But the foreword was written by Albert Einstein. OK, this book was like taken seriously in 1958. You know, they didn't know about uh, the the tectonic plates and stuff like that that had not been worked out yet. Um, geologic science hadn't, you know, hadn't progressed. So this was like an idea. It's a link in the chain of building that kind of science. But people came back to it in a way to be like, see, Einstein thought that this was right. And so we're right. And it's like, oh, my God, <laughs> this is like a bunch of bullshit. Also, I feel like that's a classic example of like people trying to assert expertise in one area when their actual expertise is in another very relevant to COVID right now. Um, Mm, Like just because you're good at relativity and physics doesn't mean you know shit about geology just because you say are really good at Atlantis. Yeah. And just because you're really good at modeling (laughs) politics or anything else uh, does not mean, you know, about infectious disease dynamics, put your Excel sheet away, please. Just because you work for Google doesn't make you a epidemiologist. Yes. Not that I had any encounters with people on Twitter about that. No. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) 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 Okay. But but I do I do think that this thing in the book is an allusion to that. 
like in a in a roundabout way. Like mm. it was part of the conversation at the time. Like people did not really take it seriously, but it was like interesting. And it was the kind of thing that you could like fold in there. I mean, it's there for other reasons, but like it's also there because you'd be like, oh, yeah, I heard about that while you're reading the book at the time. Mm-hmm. So all this is super interesting. <laughs> Uh, but I got something completely different out of this conversation that Lee is having with these dudes about the uh, civilization under the ice and how the world went through this big change. Uh, And obviously Pullman was probably pulling from all these things that we talked about. Um, But I do think that he was just writing this in more for the mythology of the story uh, because he does specifically mention that this was 30,000 years ago, which, as we recall from previous episode, is how old the skulls were with the trepanning that had more dust than the other stuff. So it is a specific allusion to a big change that the world and presumably humanity went through 30,000 years ago within his world. Right. And yeah, and right after we get that with Lee, we get the interview with the witches and the guy is talking about how, well, you know, a thousand generations ago, all of yeah. this happened before. Yeah, you exactly. Know, this, it's all happening again. So it, it's interesting how he takes all this stuff and then molds it into his mythology that he's creating. It's cool because it it feels kind of spooky, right? Like if you're reading this at the time and you like the ice is pulling away from Antarctica and you're like, oh, is this happening here too? Because Lyra is now in my world as I'm reading this book and right. like, is, is it happening? Is it real? You know, that's kind of fun. And it, it also showcases happened. one of the things, yeah, <laughs> one of the things that I've always thought was interesting that. Like if I don't know how to say this, especially the two scientists listening who might just tell me how wrong I am, but <laughs> we're listening. I think that Go there's on. a lot of science that kind of, if you want to interpret it in a certain way, supports a lot of religion. Go and, on. But because so many uh, highly religious people are very against science, they just never really look into it. You know, like, and I think it's interesting that in this very anti-religious doctrine, he has kind of pulled the two together. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's a good point. Hmm. I would say that there's a philosophical slant here being that religion is almost inherently concerned with things which are unprovable or not disprovable necessarily. Um, right, right. Uh, which I would actually say that faith is concerned with that, which is a different thing than religion. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's fair. I don't know. Are they or at least Are they the same? I thing? say that that. Uh, well, I don't think so. I'm sure some mm, sorry, people no, do. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and I guess a lot. Of, yeah, that that's a fair point. That the people would think that. Oh, it's, it's an interesting one, though. Definitely. Um, there are either ways to interpret things or things which don't rely on science to be by, by their very nature that it doesn't matter so even you know when he's bringing science into it he's giving an, an explanation for things and he's trying to say well 
you know, obviously the science says this, thus the religion is wrong. Mm-hmm. And in some madness, he actually ends up saying, well, no one knows. And thus the religion could be right. Yeah. Which is, yeah. That's good. And, but I also just think that there is a lot of religion, or sorry, a lot of science where if you didn't delve too deep into it, uh, like, for example, obviously we've talked about this a lot, but Scridinger's cat experiment, that whole thing where things don't happen unless you view them. You could take that to imply that somebody must be viewing us at all time or nothing is happening. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who, yeah. Who, what, what is the property of the observer that makes them the observer? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I, I don't know. Who knows? But, you know, like... That's super and I think that that's just... Uh, I mean, I would say that a lot of the animosity between religion and science, and this is like a personal bugaboo of mine, uh, is like a constructed political animosity that emerged out of the 1960s and 70s and didn't exist before that. But a lot of like our history has been rewritten in that context. And so that's why I go on about things about, you know, like. Uh, in the previous episode, I was talking about how um, not uh, see it's been a while for us, so I can't remember the actual name of the astronomer uh, who was put on trial. Galileo. I was like, he was a Catholic. Galileo, Galileo was like, <laughs> he was a Catholic. You guys, he was a very proud Catholic um, because that is not the narrative that you will get now. Because at a, a certain point in the West it became politically polarized that if you were religious, then you were right wing. And if you were invested in kind of academia, you were left wing. And so these things had to have more antagonism that was justified through historicity, like throughout all of history, religion and science have been fighting becomes like the new mythology that we have to buy into Um, But these things are just different ways of knowing. They're just different ways of thinking about information. They're not necessarily like intrinsically antagonistic to each other unless you like force them to be the way that they are now. Do do remember if you're looking at um, even the PhD, your PhD is a philosophy doctorate, essentially. You're a doctor of philosophy. Um, And firstly, philosophy and religion were much more closely linked at the time when that became a standard and there's also a doctor of divinity which is a um is basically post phd for certain for oxford and cambridge particularly um uh, it's uh, it's basically an upgrade on phd it's a little bit complicated but just think about what that says for a second doctor of divinity now right that's that's uh you know it's a school of theology this is really it's a seminary and so all of the you know very traditionally in all of the ancient universities there was a huge link between the religious and the scientific there was a huge link between you know as as alan said um this wasn't always this polarized in fact it was quite the opposite the uh the academics were the religious fiends it was all the same thing Mm-hmm. And now, now it's much more polarized, much different. Which, you know, there's good and bad things to that, but it's super interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, I think Pullman is actively participating in that polarization. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's part of the point of this series yeah. is, you know, to combat um, religious ideas that are invisible in the culture to on a certain degree. Um, or, you know, are are taken for granted and like the fights are fought on the ground of religious ideas. And, you know, science has to like prove it's, uh, you know, like it's not worth necessarily, but like it has to like prove itself in terms of religion on some level. And then, you know, like that script gets flipped and then religion tries to like prove itself in terms of, well, you know, that clearly this thing on this mountain is, is uh, Noah's Ark, you know, <laughs> there's, there's, there's all this wood here and, uh, that's how else could it get here? So that proves the Bible is true. Therefore that proves science is false. And it's like, you just use science to disprove science. Shut up. <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> just read some popper. I mean, maybe don't if you, it's fine. <laughs> Just believe in Noah's Ark. It's okay. Just stop. stop. Just you don't have to prove it to everyone. It doesn't matter. <laughs> You're overthinking this. Well, uh, just I get just to sum all this up. I guess I just really like how um, in creating this anti-religion story, because he sort of had to make a religious story. Yeah, obviously. Mm -hmm. So that's something that and, I want to talk about more. Yeah once we have like the full text in front of us, because I think that's part of why I missed the anti-religious message when I was a kid and why I was like so confused that this was used as like an atheist text, because it's like, but there are angels. How does right. that work? <laughs> but I don't remember anything about book three, so... Did you read book three again recently? No. I So I've read book oh, I two. Thought, okay. Yeah. So when we were going okay, through and okay. podcasting about book one, I like had a vague recollection of book one, but I wasn't reading ahead of the podcast. So like I was, everything was kind of right. new-ish as I was encountering it. This time I've read all of book two, but I've not read book three yet. Right. On to blood moss. <laughs> so one last quick science thing that I wanted um, to bring up was the use of blood moss um, as like a antiseptic um, that Grumman apparently used um, when his leg got caught in that bear trap. Um, and it just made me think if blood moss, I'm assuming it was probably like some kind of lichen, um, which is like a symbiosis between fungi and algae and um, bungee obviously um, are like the source of penicillin and a lot of other antibiotics that we use. Um, so I was wondering if maybe that was like a reference to antibiotic properties of fungi. I didn't know that about fungi. That's cool. Yeah, penicillin comes from basically just like common bread molds. Um, was that Alexander Fleming? He was like a really sloppy scientist and his his <laughs> bacterial cultures got contaminated and that's how he discovered penicillin. Yeah, I always thought great. that was a myth. No, uh, pretty you know, much exactly. Pretty what sure it's real. I mean yeah, he, it, that's awesome. it may be a little bit apocryphal, but it's yeah, it's pretty much that. His his <clears> office <throat> I think is still there. There's a big old big old sign on the side of uh what's the building? Um I think it's the School of Tropical Health and Medicine now. So I, in terms of the blood moss, I think this is uh, referring specifically to sphagnum moss. Or sphagnum moss. 
which uh, was used as a wound dressing throughout history, but particularly in World War One, where it was actually shipped as a kind of sort of sterile bandage. Because um, basically it absorbs the blood and pus and everything really, really readily. It's got a very open cell structure. Um, so it can absorb double the amount of an equivalent cotton pad. And back in World War One, particularly, cotton was all being used for you know, shells and guns and things like that to use the cotton wadding for... Uh, wadding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and also, yeah, the, the sphagnum actually has antiseptic properties, but not in an antibiotic manner. What it has is it acidifies its environment. This is why it grows in acid bog. Um, oh, interesting. And, yeah, so it actually makes the bog more acid. And uh, so it lowers the pH of the wound, which stops the growth of necrosing bacteria. So yeah, that I think that blood moss, considering it's called blood moss as well, and its big purpose is that it absorbs blood, I am very suspicious that that's what it's talking about. Though I don't know if sphagnum moss grows in any kind of Arctic, Antarctic style regions, uh, because I do know that they talk about it with the bears. Yeah. Um, well, it's like Anya said, he says, it's not really a moss, it's a lichen, you know. <laughs> Yes, yes, he does. It and it's possible Pullman was just inspired by. Yes. Yeah. I didn't know that about World War One. I've I've definitely heard like that's a ancient thing to like use moss on wounds and like honey mm-hmm. is like well known for the same kind of thing. You put honey on the wound and then you put moss Will on does it that. and you're good. He uses honey on the cat. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep, yep, that's right. I forgot about that, but yeah. Yeah, and that that is, again, relatively realistic. They uh, do... It is sterile, I think, or at least mostly sterile. And, yeah, in fact, it's very, very sterile. And it's it very, has... Yeah. There are some claims that it also has antiseptic properties, but these are a little bit less defined. <clears throat> I'm, I'm choosing my words carefully here. <laughs> well, I think it's not part of it, too, that honey just doesn't have enough water for bacteria to mm-hmm. grow in it. So it it has to be like, it's not necessarily necessarily that like the honey kills bacteria, but like if you goop it on thick enough, the bacteria can't grow in it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, they knew that it worked. They didn't know why. Because it's, you know, Mm -hmm. it was just one of those things where it's gone on for a long time. And honey is like well known as one of those like traveling foods. If you could get it, you'd be like, we can take honey with us wherever we go. And this is like you know, calories that won't go bad, basically. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because I mean, that's they... why the bees made it to last a long time. That's its purpose. Exactly. And they, right. they found some honey in, uh, I believe, ancient Egyptian tombs, uh, which was still perfectly edible. Yep. Absolutely fine. Yep. Also, oh my God, just, that's just, fucking uh, wild. Yeah, it's crazy. That's... Who wants to be the cursed. person to, like, eat the crazy ancient <laughs> honey and then turn into a zombie? Not me. Yes. I was just gonna say, who's gonna be first in line to eat the cursed honey? Yeah, God. Sean Bean. It's, it's always Sean intern. Bean. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> just another interesting point on sphagnum mosses. Um, it. So I, I mentioned that they soak up a lot of water. Um, there's actually a really relatively recent paper which looks at them, looks at this as a part of their biology, and says, well. They release they they soak up the water and then release it slowly to keep the bogs waterlogged even and kind of buffer um, climate oh. changes, and so they're actually a uh, ecosystem engineer or a habitat manipulator. 
which is crazy. I'm learning. I'm a zoologist. I don't even care about plants that much, but this is cool. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Point of interest, algae are not plants. Oh, really? these, well, these, yeah, because fungi, right? But, yeah. well, but, but, these are, but this is a moss. It's, so it's not a lichen. No, it is a moss. Okay, an actual <laughs> moss. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and yeah, they are sometimes called peat I mosses, think... but they're not actually um, the same thing, I don't think. I guess I just yeah. got in my head that it was a lichen because that was what it said in the book. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, there's a certain amount of artistic liberty going in there. Okay. But super, super As cool. With all the I science. had no idea. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and and all the philosophy <laughs> and all the oh, yeah. all of it. It's almost like it's a novel. What? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so religion uh, is this now my turn to not talk? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I mean, I don't have anything in here either. But uh, we get. I get. I can hit some things pretty fast here. There's um. When the witches are talking to random guy who seems to know a lot about his world, um, he makes reference. We talked about this before about like all of this has happened before, uh, which seems to me to be a reference to Paradise Lost, which we talked about in the first episode of the show. Um, you know, the the poem that kind of originally inspired Philip Pullman to a certain degree um, and inspired like the choice of the Golden Compass and. Uh, His Dark Materials is like, you know, titles. Um, Paradise Lost is like the, it's not actually about the war between Satan and God. It's like the aftermath of it. It's kind of like the post-apocalypse before uh, Adam and Eve, basically. Um, And so like, it seems like that those, the information in Paradise Lost seems canonical on a certain level to His Dark Materials. Um, at least from what we're getting from this guy anyway, that there was a war between Satan and God. Because if you go and read the Bible, you'd be like, wow, that sounds cool. Like I want to read about like demons and angels fighting. You won't find it because it's not in the Bible. Um, There is no, like that wasn't a thing Um, to the ancient Hebrew people. There was no, not even an idea of Satan. Like the, the serpent in the garden is just like not even a, an, an angel or like a particular person. Um, it's just like a, an, a kind of expression of human temptation. You know what I mean? Like it's allegorical in its character originally. And um, it only takes on a persona like over time. Um, and, and once Christianity gets a hold of it, like they kind of retcon the Jewish Bible in a way to be like, well, this means that, and that means this, and we're going to throw out everything that the Jews said about this because we all know they're wrong. Um, and so you won't find this story. Uh, it's, it's something that Milton made up, um, kind of based on, uh, pseudonymous, uh, canon, like, like extra canonical documents. Like um, there's, there's this, you know, the books of the Bible, it'd be like the book of Matthew, the book of John. There's this other book called the book of Enoch that talks about Satan uh, and his demonic followers, but it wasn't like a part of the Bible. It was like this extra kind of other thing that you would read 
to understand the Bible better. It, it was like secondary canon. Like Jewish canon is complicated and it doesn't really matter in terms of like understanding what's going on in his dark materials. But basically <clears throat> Christians throughout all of that stuff that gave context to the Old Testament and said, oh no, we understand the Old Testament in terms of our Roman religion and like completely misunderstood all of the Old Testament. Um, and so you, after you know, like after that point, you come up with this character of Satan, you know, who talks to Jesus and appears in the book of Revelation. Oh, that's the serpent. But that was never the idea with the Hebrew people. And in fact, like the, the God of like the first five books of the Bible is a God of good and evil. Like he is supreme master of all forces in the universe and he would have dealt out evil and good. And that was not like confusing to ancient Hebrew people. Um, he wasn't a God of goodness that, that came much later where it was purified into like um, good and evil sides because other religions were catching on. And that's the thing that they were doing. And part of Judaism is like, it is flexible in a way where it can uh, change with the times and adapt with whatever culture it finds itself uh, in, in order to survive. That's why it's like one of the most ancient religions on earth. And it's still around because it's, it can evolve. It's like built into the religion. So anyway, Paradise Lost canon in Lyra's universe, apparently. Just to touch on that for a second, I think it's important story-wise, not like religious-wise, I suppose, to take note that everyone's talking about how this has all happened before, that yeah. you know, 30,000 years ago, and then in this chapter, I think we get our first hint, you know, we see angels flying towards a fortress, so we get right. our first sort of hint that maybe this isn't just going to be Will and Lyra and an alethiometer, that there is more going on. Yeah, exactly. Because that's like, that is how Paradise Lost is. There's like angels zipping around throughout the universe. They're building castles out in the, you know, in the middle of like space or something. It's just called like the chaos. Mm -hmm. um, they're building fortresses in hell and, um, yeah, it's like it's weird. It's it's a bizarre like fantasy uh story. With like, you know, like some of the people who fall down into hell with Satan are like Zeus and like I'm not joking. Like that <laughs> so like basically like all of the European pantheon or like the, you know, the god from the Bible Baal and stuff like that gets name dropped. And so Milton's explanation for all of human history is that it's been demons roaming around on the earth saying, no, no, I'm God. You should worship me that have kind of like mucked up uh, the human perception of right and wrong and distracted from like our original God made purpose of glorifying God. Right. That's um, interesting with how, with where the story goes. Then. Exactly. Yeah. And so these angels, you know, presumably would have been part of that cadre of, you know, well, we don't know what side these guys are on, but, but it's, you know, when, uh, 
Satan infiltrates Earth in Paradise Lost, he has to like talk to the angel who's in charge of the sun. And then he has to talk to the angel who's in charge of like the atmosphere of Earth and, you know, to get down into the Garden of Eden to tempt Adam and Eve. Um, So he has to like interact with all of these other angels. And they're like, oh, I thought you got kicked out of the club. And he's like, it's cool. It's cool. You know, Um, (laughs) we're going to work it out. Fine. So like, you know, when Satan goes and builds castle pandemonium in the middle of the, uh, the, you know, universal chaos out there, it's kind of like Azrael building some kind of fortress three worlds away from where he started to attack, you know, whatever dust is like, there's clear parallels there. That's cool. Well, and it's, it's it lends more to our Azrael is Satan talks. Yeah, not just a giant cat. Um, <laughs> right. Azrael is Satan in more ways than one. <laughs> All right. Uh, so the other thing that I see here um, that I think is kind of important is when we do meet the angels, uh, we get that. We already talked about this. We get this brief pullback of like the narrator changes from being in Ruda's perspective to being a kind of omniscient and tells us that they are like architecture or information that's alive. Uh, And that's important in terms of Plato and his idea of um, ideal forms. And like we talked about this last time, how Plato's cave, you know, says that uh, we exist inside of the cave, right? And that there's just shadows on the wall and everything that we perceive is like kind of um, incorrect. Like we we don't really live in this material universe. This material universe is a reflection of an ideal universe that's full of actual forms that are eternal and true and real. And, you know, when it comes down to like you as a person, your ideal eternal form would be your soul. That's like the perfect version of you and this crude like body that's made of material that can be hurt or can be like dismembered or will eventually die is a a shadow or an imitation of your soul form, your real form. And so these angels are like perfect in terms of their human composition, right? Like Ruta notices that they're like, wow, they're like more people than people, uh, except for the wings on their back because they're ideal, right? They're like platonically ideal. And I don't think that that's a coincidence because like we haven't talked about Narnia in a minute, but (laughs) the idea of like platonic forms in a platonic realm is like central to Narnia as a story. Like Narnia is kind of the platonic realm of earth. It's like the, the better version of what earth should be in his, you know, in his story, it's kind of a a more pure version. That's why only children go there for the most part, because like you're more innocent and and all of that kind of stuff, whatever it's, it's like a, a truer version. And I think that this is part of what Pullman is reacting to. And I think this is, part of the source of confusion, like Anya was saying, for some people when they read through the story, it would be like, isn't this kind of anti-religious or pro-science? By having these characters, these angels, and linking them with Platonism here, 
I think he is setting up a, an important contrast. Like, like my favorite moment there was when Ruta talks about being embodied and we think about Pantaliman uh, licking Will's wound, which is a very like embodied real thing on both sides of that, right? Like Will is suffering because he's wounded and Pantaliman is literally giving him physical comfort. And, and the physicality of that is kind of like important in that moment uh, in a way that like the angels are not, they're alien to all of that and kind of wrong and outside of it. They don't fit into the rest of the universe in the same way that all of this other stuff does in these characters that we care about and feel are good characters. Um, these, you know, but angels are supposed to be good, right? By nature, we would, you know, like an angel is equates to good, but not in Philip Pullman's, uh, you know, kind of construction of the world. They feel alien and different and weird. And that's because they're platonic, because they're living ideas and not bodies, that they, they feel wrong because of that. So it's like he took Platonism that says the real world is fake and the ideal world is good and right and real. And he turned all that inside out. The angels that are ideas feel weird and wrong and alien. And the embodied people feel familiar, right, and good. Mm. And like... In that quote that you read earlier, when Ruda says she feels, like, connected to every living thing in this, like, cycle um, of nutrients, um, (laughs) I guess I had to go there. No, but, like, it's, that's, like, it's so beautifully written, and it is, like, a really nice counterpoint to that kind of, like, alien thing. I think it's, it's showing that, like, being super in touch with your physical being is I think it's written in such a way to to come across as good, not as naive, right. like capital G good. It's a celebration of it. There are also interesting and odd uh, descriptions of angels as well, beyond the kind of classical uh, ideas of angels being relatively human shaped and you know big old trumpets, things like that. Uh, I can't remember right. where they're described as being like wheels or like multi-faced beings. I can't remember. Yeah, if it's... The book of Ezekiel yeah. is a wheel within a wheel. And uh, yeah, the seraphim have four faces, three animal faces and a human face mm. in the book of Revelation. Yeah. the it, Yeah. Uh, angels definitely do have a kind of surreal alienness to them mm. in Christianity and in Abrahamic religions, actually. Um, All of them. Yeah. And there, I think this does line up with that, but I also think that this is like intentionally pulling in Plato in a way that um, he's doing on purpose. Like I am biased in this reading because uh, of that other book that I read of Pullman's uh, demon voices um, which is about writing and he writes about Plato and how much he hates him and how much he hates Plato in Narnia. Um, mm. So it's definitely on my mind when I'm seeing these weird uh, angels here. I would say also um, a lot of angels in just the exact same way that I talked about Milton um, 
you know, says that like, oh, all the fallen angels such as Zeus and Athena and, you know, Poseidon and all of this stuff. And you go like, oh, I see Greek mythology is actually all demons. Um, the, the Hebrew people did that as well. And so like the wheel within a wheel was like a, a group out of um, like what would we call modern day Anatolia. They worshiped that like their God was like a wheel. Um, and so they would say like, oh, no, your God is not God. Your, our God is God and your God, it works for our God. Like uh-huh. He's an angel. Yeah. And so like, oh, you worship a giant bull. Well, yeah, well, there's these angels. One of their faces is a bull. You worship a giant eagle. The other face is a, the face of an eagle. Yeah, like, get with the program, guys. Like, our God is the God, okay? I heard bull and your there. your God works for it. I heard bull there as bowl. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> like, yeah, that's God's bowl. He, uh, he eats his porridge out of that. So you suck. <laughs> oh, no, it's meant to be Baal. Ah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So a little bit different <laughs> touch coming from all of this. I have a question for you guys, which is I'm curious how you think they might be portrayed in the show or like if you have any uh, desires for how that might be. Because when I was reading the book, it does like mention that they're humans and that they're naked. And I was just like wondering, like, are we going to get some nudity on the BBC show? It's like <laughs> been pretty, I mean, it's been pretty uh, like PG friendly so far for the most part. So, yeah, I was just curious for your thoughts on that. Also, like, how do you portray visually a being that is like not truly a physical being? Yeah. Maybe they'll just do that trick where you never actually see the angels. It's all just from the perspective over their shoulder. So you see like a perfect shoulder. And then <laughs> just Rutus Gardy going. That would be super confusing for non-book people. I'd be like, why are they doing this? And they, just, they can't just, do that. No, they definitely can't. Yeah. They could just show them as because... skyscrapers, like beings of information and structure. <laughs> right? The problem is there's going to be mainish characters that are angels later, so they have to keep that True. in yeah. mind. Mm, okay. Oh, yeah, we'll see. They'll be embodied, I think. That's a good question about the nudity. I I would suspect that they would um, not be naked. Yeah, I'm going to assume that they're just going to be kind of see-through-y like ghosts. Mm. Because that is a big plot point, especially in book three, that mm. they don't have bodies. As we, as Alan has just been uh, lecturing us about. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, dad. He kind of, he kind of says in this part too that they like when the sun comes out, it's hard to see them. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. they're not as yeah. obvious. Yeah. Yeah. I think they, they'll probably go down the route of basically CGing the bodies. So they are like implying sex without directly showing anything like taboo, if you will. Yeah. I think they'll be very like Botticelli is what I think. They'll That's be like a- very... Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, too, just because I know that there are scenes later that, well, if they do them, I don't whatever, uh, that need to have like a good emotional impact. And if you had a bunch of naked people standing around, you wouldn't get that. Yeah. You know, like there's a specific scene in this book that I'm thinking of where 
whatever, little spoiler, where the angels are all staring at Will and Lyra. And I'm like, if you've got a bunch of naked adults standing around staring at these kids, you're not going to get, you know, you're not going to get like the emotional impact that this scene is supposed to have. You're going to get like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's going to be a different energy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> No, that's that's, that's a really, a really good point. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, point. yeah. That's the kind of thing you have to think about in adaptation. It'd be like, we're going to we're 100 percent with the text. It'd be like, OK, you're going to come into some weird things then. Yeah. yeah. I honestly, I don't I don't know how they're going to. Well, I mean, you can very easily visibly do that scene, but the all the stuff behind, I don't know. Anyways, no, I was just going to say, visually speaking, that's like my the one scene I'm most excited to see. So it's also the one I'm most the worried, most worried about visually speaking. Yeah. You could do the thing like from the movie contact, right? Is that too much of a dated reference? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I Where, just watched like, it for the end. first time very recently. <laughs> yeah. Remember at the end, the like an alien shows up and is like, you look just like my dad. How, how can this be? And be like, yeah, I look like what you can handle. Right. Yeah. Like, I look like the thing that you doesn't scramble your brains when you look at me, but from a distance, it does look like something else. And then it kind of looks like a heat mirage or something. And then it's like, Oh yeah, I'm a person too. Um, but so again, you can it, do it, it is like important that. that they have them not be physical. I think like they have yeah. to be kind of wispy. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's actually a really good point because I think that that is like <clears throat> a major theme that, like I said, that I think the angels are bringing in here about how being embodied is like a good thing. And, um, yeah. And how very much a very important theme. Yeah. And the angels are not that, and that that is an important thing about what they are and are not. Well, I don't, I actually don't think it's important that the angels aren't that so much as they're there to be a, a foil to that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They make that a thing, right? Much more than I think the than the demons do in terms of like poofing away when when you die, the angels like are much more of a contrast and the specters too, you know. Yeah. So the angels have to look different than the specters too. That's going to be. Oh yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. The specters are just um, you know, Harry Potter. Dementors. Dementors. Yeah. There we go. Yep, Dementors. But I kind of hope that, like, so in the terms of the show, <laughs> you guys are remembering everything, that, um, that we don't, I hope we don't see them <laughs> in, until, like, a grown-up shows up. You know what I mean? Like, I hope oh, that the yeah. kids are like, yeah, 100%. why are they screaming? And, yeah, like, yeah. this doesn't make sense. What's going on? Because what's scary about the specters, and they're kind of disembodied, too, is that they're not there, but something is happening, right? Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and the horror of what's left is, like, um, really disturbing because you don't know why it happened. Uh, the only other thing I've got in here is philosophy, um, more Nietzsche stuff. Um, as we continue with his uh, will and, and Will's will. And Will. Okay. <laughs> so we find out that Will is the bearer um, of the knife, right? And uh, this seems to be like a kind of faded thing, right? Like, they're like, well, how do you know that Will is the bearer? And the guy like holds up his hand and he's like, I know 
what's up, y'all? Like, this happened to me. Uh, and we've also been talking about how all of this happened before, right? This is a cycle. Um, and one of Nietzsche's important uh, philosophical ideas is this idea of eternal recurrence. Um, usually when you hear about this, it's kind of um, existentialism or like a, a kind of Groundhog's Day thing. He kind of encourages you to ask the question of like, if you had to live all of your life over again and you couldn't change anything, you would just be experiencing it over again. Oh, would that be hell or like, would you be okay with that? Hell. Right. And, <laughs> and so he Ta-da. would encourage you to be like, change your life then, you know, start living differently um, so that you're happy uh, and your life would be like awesome. Uh, to I was, with. I was thinking of that differently. Like it wouldn't be hell because of anything that I'm doing right this instant, it would be hell because if I'm spoilers, well, (laughs) no, 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 no. Sorry. But if I'm living my whole life over again with the knowledge that I have now, but I can't do anything to change anything like from the times that I was shitty or that's mostly what I'm thinking about Mm, when the mm -hmm. times when I was an asshole and at the time I didn't realize it, but looking back, and I had to just go and be an asshole again? No, thank you. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, at the time that Nietzsche was writing, that was kind of the first, you know, like England is colonizing uh, India. And the, for the first time, uh, Europe is interacting with like Hinduism and Buddhism um, in a major way where it's learning about um, doctrines of reincarnation and um, cyclical spiritual life and stuff like that. And Nietzsche's reading all of this and he's like, oh, this is really interesting. This idea of like, you have to live your life over again. And then there's like these consequences and this kind of by repetition, there's like this spiral. Right. And he's like, if I had to live my life over again, I would definitely do it differently. So why don't I just start doing it differently now? Like why wait until you're dead? Right. And I think that's, Okay, this is neither here nor there, but I think that's just a stupid way of thinking about things. But <laughs> to well, you know, but the Christians would say, "Wait until you're dead," you know, because that's when your reward. Oh, happens, no, sorry, you're right? like I don't mean that. I mean, yeah, using that as motivation to change your life now. Like you've already made those choices. You can only go forward from here. You know, you you can't. Oh, totally. Like if I could go yeah, back and, and make different choices, absolutely I would. But that doesn't change. I can't immediately make those cho- choices have not happened. Yeah. And, and in Nietzsche's Europe, everybody would have told you, well, those choices are what make you a capital B bad person, right? And you need to repent and you need to go to church more and you need to feel bad about it until you die. And then things will finally be good because you'll be in heaven. And Nietzsche was like, I reject all that. Like exactly what Caitlin is saying. Feel bad about it. Therefore, change it. Change it now. Like stop being shitty. Don't feel mm-hmm. guilty about it. Use it for fuel to be a better person. Right. Uh, and people were like, Nietzsche, you're a terror. Like, how dare you say this? Like to us, this is like common sense. Right. Oh, but okay. at the time it was um, radical. I was going to say, I've never needed religion to make me feel bad about myself. <laughs> oh, Kate. 
I didn't even mean that to get the ahs that that's just got it. I assume that that is a common human thing that you don't really need God telling you that you're bad to be like, oh, man, I did that shitty thing that time. (laughs) Well, Nietzsche would have pointed out that like all of our society is like informed by Christian culture. And so making you feel guilty and bad is like built in. It's like Mm. part of the architecture Mm -hmm, of Western mm -hmm. civilization. And it's a way to control you, you know. Um, into doing certain things. And so uh, that's kind of important too in terms of like, okay, so to get back into this, Will uh, is the bearer and he doesn't really have a choice about that, right? Um, he he just is the bearer. And we know that that's true because it's recurring. It's happening again. The bearer has been chosen in the same way that it's always been chosen, I guess. Um, according to this guy who teaches him the rules. And so there, like I said, there are certain rules. He has certain behaviors that he has to do. And that's a very Nietzschean idea of this cycle that, or the way that society is constructed. You don't have choices about a lot of things. And we talked about this in the first book too, about how if you don't have choices you know, with in, in terms of like original sin, you don't, you were born a sinner. That means you don't really have a choice. It, it doesn't matter what kind of chicken soup you make, right? It's a sinful chicken soup. We talked about that. There's nothing that you can do that makes you good w- under original sin, except for uh, opting into the religion and, and doing what you're told. And, and the same thing, you know, for the entire way that Western culture is constructed, there are rules about engaging with society and those rules are meant to control your behavior. And so to conform to those rules in order to engage with the culture means that you are like, you know, Will follows the rules here, but that means that he becomes the bearer by doing that. Um, He is playing his role by, you know, molding his mind into the way that you use the alethiometer or use the cave from the previous episode or use the knife. Like these all seem to be the same kind of mental state. He is playing the role of the bearer. He is following the rules of his role of his fate and, um, doing his thing. And, um, you know, like Nietzsche says that, your will to power, like what makes you, you is taking responsibility for that saying, well, if I got it, if this is who I am, then this is who I am. I choose this. I am this. I will take this power and be what I can be with within it. Um, because you don't get choices about everything. You can't control everything, but you can control your attitude towards it, your orientation. And that affects your happiness in whatever circumstance you find yourself in, right? Where if you choose that I'm going to do whatever, then you're not a slave to it. You have taken agency in it. Um, and you're, you have some way to control uh, the cycle of it, if you will. And it seems like Will does that. He figures out how to use the knife and uh, steps into the role of the bearer and starts to construct a plan to take the alethiometer back. He's not just doing what he was told, come bring me back the knife and give it to me. He's saying, no, we're going to go get the alethiometer. And now we have a tool to do that with. Right. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of a good lead into a question I had since all of you guys are way better uh, or more enthusiastic Tolkien fans than I am. I was like, maybe seeing some interesting uh, parallels between the knife and the ring. And I know it's not like an exact um, or like perfect analogy, but like Tulio is like kind of being driven crazy by the knife. And I saw him as like maybe a little bit of a golem like figure. Um, mm, and the fact that like the weapon like takes a toll on the people who wield it. Like in this case, it kind of takes a toll in different ways. Um, whether it like takes your fingers if you're a legitimate bearer or not um, with Tulio. Oh, there's but, a yeah. physical toll to the ring for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I was just, this is the first time that I've noticed that while reading it. Um, and I was wondering if any of that like resonated with you or not. I mean, That's obviously, very cool. po- I like that. Yeah. Obviously, Pullman is like super familiar with Tolkien and like fantasy mythology in general. So mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if you think it's like if there's a little bit of intention there, if it's just completely accidental. Like, obviously, if he didn't intend it, we can still read it into the text. But I don't feel that it is as such intentional, but I do see what you mean with it. Like, he kind of has halfway between Gollum and um what's this name from Notre Dame what's the hunchback's name Nostradam it's not Nostradamus Quasimodo Quasimodo there we are Quasimodo yeah. four for four on Anya's words like today 10 for 10 yeah. oh, here we go <laughs> <laughs> teleology Galileo Quas- <laughs> shit I forget what the other one was never mind just Quasimodo. I don't I don't personally really see it but that's I. It feels. I want this guy to play to like Gollum now. Yeah, <laughs> that would be cool. What, so, uh, Andy Circus playing Tulio. Yeah. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> My precious. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I can see that, like that Tulio wants this thing that really just isn't for him and won't work properly or what have you for him. But I don't know. It just, it does just feel very different to me. That's true. Now that you say that, it's not like there's there's definitely no point where Gollum like takes anybody aside and says, like, let me give you the tutorial on how this thing works. It's like it's like the opposite. (laughs) He's like, when when are you going to be asleep so I can cut your throat and take it? I like that. Uh, I like seeing other stories in it, though, because like I was I was, you know, drawing a parallel between Narnia and the angels. And I think there is something there. Uh, in terms of like these mystical objects, right? I think mm-hmm. the the knife does seem to have a life of its own, and so does the alethiometer. I don't know if it's exactly the same as the ring, but like it is definitely connected to that kind of platonic, you know, ideal place, which is totally but, like a thing in Tolkien. But there's there's multiple alethiometers, and there's only one ring and one knife. Yeah. Oh, true. Yeah, the single, the singularity. I mean, there's more than one ring. There's There's like 20. To be fair, it's called the one ring. Yeah. I mean, Anya has a point. But that's just marketing. (laughs) That's marketing. (laughs) When we say one, we mean 19. (laughs) Have your own one ring for only 599. 
I'm, I'm trying just, to think how many I'm there just trying to are. think about this. Like, I don't know. They just feel like two completely different things to me. Because while the knife, it definitely has its own agenda, I don't think it is inherently evil. Mm-hmm. Well, the ring was yeah, inherently agree. evil. And but obviously this doesn't like detract from there being like parallels you can draw. Um, but so much as I just feel like Tolkien was trying to do something different than what Pullman is trying to do. Oh, yeah. I mean, Tolkien is making like a political argument about like, hey, you know how we used to be the empire of the whole world? Maybe that made us bad. Do you ever think about that? That maybe we being in charge of the world is not a good thing to be in charge of because people should just do their own thing. And Pullman's like, hey, you know how religion is in every part of our culture? Maybe that's fucked up. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm not even going to get into your thoughts on Tolkien. But anyways, I more meant that like the ring and and Tolkien, Tolkien is very much like C.S. Lewis, although he would hate that I'm saying that, uh, in that he was telling (laughs) an allegorical religious story. Yeah. And arguably Pullman is too, but he's attempting to do the opposite. Yeah, an anti-religious yeah. allegory. Yeah. And but I think the allegory is much more subtle in in both Tolkien and and Lewis. Like I didn't when I first read Narnia when I was a kid, I didn't pick up on any of the Christianity because yeah, I had yeah, no yeah. idea what Christianity was. Right. Um, that's about the only way you can do that, yeah. I think. And then like I had it pointed out to me later and I was like, "Oh, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. It just feels like Tolkien has a weird agenda in all of his books that there is some jewelry and it's evil and it drives people to do evil. <laughs> He's got a hang up about it. All it's of true. his books have this. Uh, well, that doesn't seem to be the case with Pullman. No, that's true. It's the the knife is not like evil itself yeah it does cause trouble though you know like like we said earlier with the specters you know like yeah francis was making a connection between like atomic power and yeah and I, the decline I of say, their civilization and stuff i would say you know since we're mostly a no spoilers podcast when we do the books we don't know if the knife is evil or not right like, we, we don't know much about it at the moment other than it can cut through reality and also anything else which by the way i thought it was freaking hilarious when like we see the knife just sink through this lead on the on the roof there and then i love that and then will wraps a rope around his hand as if that's gonna help somehow i'm like we just saw it (laughs) cut through lead buddy (laughs) that rope's doing nothing that's funny i didn't think about it that way I mean, he probably didn't have time to put two and two together. And like on a normal knife fight, the rope might actually help some. So. Right. But still, I was like, OK, sure. And it is it is actually it is actually implied that he's a in certainly in the show that he does a lot of boxing and stuff and wrapping your hands to protect your knuckles is a something you do in boxing. That's true. That's and, uh, true. Thai, uh, Muay Thai in particular. I know that there's that is a thing. So. Oh yeah, you wouldn't want to get punched with somebody who has rope around their knuckles. That would be bad. Sure. Someone well, who maybe does Muay Thai that's what in he general. was thinking. 
But you're right, because like to protect his hand in a knife fight, he's in a, he's boxing in a knife fight. So yeah. like, yes, the rope is a good idea, but no, in terms of like that just cut through lead. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you might as well have gone in barehanded, but yeah. uh, it's OK. He was fated to win. So it's all right. Yeah. And he was fated to lose his fingers. Right. Nothing could have he could have won without cutting his fingers. And then when he went to pick up the knife, it would have cut them off. That would have yeah, been much exactly. funnier. <laughs> he just picks up oh look like, at this oh shit that's that's if i were destined to be the bearer that's how it would happen for me like i'd go to pick <laughs> up the handle and i'd just lose two fingers and be like oh <laughs> yep pull to caitlin <laughs> you just roll over in your sleep and just kind of try and hug it <laughs> oh, oh man bugger. i mean you, you joke but i literally have a cut on my hand right now and i have no idea how it fucking got there <sighs> It does sound really quite impractical. <laughs> the knife carrying it around. Doesn't he yeah. then get like a leather sheath for it? And I'm like, mm, it does okay. say specifically that it holds it really still. But I mean, oh, okay, yeah. So yeah, it's yeah was more it like, made for it? Yeah, it's protecting it from hitting things rather than like touching the blade itself. I guess right. It's like balanced on the the handle the hilt. of it. Or yeah. Something. yeah, yeah. The hilt, it's like yeah. a like a box. cross guard. You don't right. know if the knife right. is there or not until you, uh, until you <laughs> uh, I did just want to say, uh, before we get into our general discussion here, no dust watch this week because we didn't really get any information on it. Or I will actually yeah. say we did. We just don't know about it yet. So, yeah, uh, general stuff. So one thing that I thought we should definitely talk about is that I think this is the first time we see what the specters do. And do we have any thoughts on that? Does it seem familiar? Do we feel we got any more real information on the specters in these chapters? And as we kind of touched on a minute ago, I am so very interested to see how the show does them and how they show like a specter attack. Well, I think the text directly makes the comparison between humans that have been attacked by demons or sorry, humans that have been attacked by specters and humans that don't have demons. Like the witches make that connection um, mm -hmm. and say like, oh, these these humans must have their demons on the inside and the specters must be doing something to those demons. That is what I think also and is one of the reasons why I was upset in the show when uh, Roger gave those demonless kids a pep talk and it worked. Right, right. Uh, it kind of oh, completely... I get it now. Yeah, because in the past, like, or sorry, that makes a lot of sense, right? Because here, people without demons are like literally vegetables. Yeah, like mm -hmm. that one dude just drops his kid and watches his kid drown. And, and one of them, yeah. they like poke one of them or something in the leg, and they like slowly look at the painful area and then slowly look back away. So they're not even like connected to their own body anymore which is interesting considering what we were talking about with bodies and yeah and souls it is interesting though and if it you compares them to a vampire mm. too right it's interesting if you look at the show and you remember the that i guess orderly i can't remember her name off the top of my head at uh bulvanger mm -hmm. where mm, the nurse yes yeah, yeah and she seems like she's obviously had a demon cut away and she seems 
very like muted and then right at the end she actually shows some emotion which is where it seems to differ from the books so i will be interested to see whether they continue that and make them at least a little bit less blank that's a good point actually because i was kind of i guess i was making a false comparison there because those people their demons are still or maybe i guess we don't really know exactly what the specters are doing but because those people still had their demons they were just separated from them what it looks like is happening here is the specters are eating we the demons maybe are doing something to them so maybe yeah, they're consuming them com- in some way i definitely got that feeling yeah. So maybe these are people completely without demons. I don't know. Because in the, although it is also implied that completely without your demon, like if you kill a demon, you kill the person. So, well, the other, sorry, the other thing, right, is that the, maybe it's a difference between adults and children. Well, but, but we see adults who have had their demons cut away also, like the nurse and. I guess. That sort of it wasn't clear to me if the adults had their demons cut away as an adult or if they were like... I, yeah, the they, v- they did. The very... experiment has not been going on that long. Okay, okay. But I think when, when you're saying like if you completely annihilated the demon, then it would kill the person. We've definitely seen that with adults. Yeah. You know, yeah. Where the like you kill the demon and then... It poofs and then the person drops somewhere else on the battlefield. You know, we've seen that happen. So it that's not what's happening with these people. Like something is being taken from them and then there are zombies, right? Interesting word use. Um (laughs) uh, it would be interesting to see a Spectre attack somebody from Lyra's world and see how they do it. Yeah. And what happens to their demon. Do they go after the person or do they go straight for the demon? Yeah. Right. I, I genuinely don't remember if we ever see it. So. I think we do, but I can't remember. It feels familiar, but I don't remember. There's like one scene in the third book where it might be happening, but in the background. So I don't think we ever see it like get focus on it. Mm. We'll see if the show does is that. what I'm thinking. Yeah, I don't know. And they do have rules to them. It seems like um, not just the adult thing, but like the witches are able to fly and get away from them. So they can't, it seems like they can't float or maybe if they can, not very far. And so they have all kinds of rules about them. They're not just like arbitrary, mm-hmm. you know, chaos or something. I think we're going to get more information about them that proves that incorrect. Oh, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> They're very interesting. They they make me think, we talked about zombies before, they make me think of the other side of zombies, which you never see because they weren't adopted or adopted, appropriated by uh, Americans, um, you know, like Haitian zombies. There's two kinds. There's the one that's in the body that, you know, you take over as a slave and tell what to do. But then there's also invisible zombies that are basically like spirits, but they also do whatever... Uh, you tell them to do, and they will roam around the uh, graveyard and attack people, um, which is scary because they're invisible, and you you know there's nothing you can do to fight back. So these are very much like that, even though they're um, compared to vampires. But um, I don't really think that Philip Pullman knew that necessarily. Right. But uh, 
they seem like zombies to me in that way. On the topic of zombies, something to keep in mind is that there, we have heard mention of zombies in Lyra's world. Right. From the magical continent of Africa, like everything else that can't be explained. <laughs> right. I hope you heard my eye rolling. Uh, Bowed your head along the floor. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'd be interested to know more about them and how they resemble these people who have been specter attacked. We shall see. Yes. Do you know which one came first, Dementors or Spectres? About the same time. Are they coincident? Uh, uh, let me double check. I, like literally, I don't about think the it matters. Time. Yeah, it's n- yeah, exactly. I don't, I don't think either one would be copying the other, but it's interesting that they happen. Hold on, hold from on. similar authors at similar times. And there, there's something kind of like the ring wraiths too. Um, yeah. That's just. I would say that that's just visually, though. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, like ring wraiths yeah. can communicate and stuff. They don't feed on you necessarily, but they don't seem to exist in the same way. But as I guess else. I guess they can stab you and make you kind of zombieish. Anyways, the Subtle yeah. Life was published in 1997, and Prisoner of Azkaban was published in 1999. Okay. So these predate by a little bit, which I I know we've talked about before, but I couldn't remember. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting was Tulio, uh, Angelica's brother, after he loses the knife, uh, when he's being, just before he's attacked by specters, he sort of tries to count bricks in a wall. Yeah, I noticed that. Which I believe the TV show, we saw Will's mom doing something similar at one point. Right. Mm. OCD behavior. Yeah. Yeah, I completely missed that when I read through. Yeah. Yeah, so did I. Uh. So are you, is there a specific connection between them that you're trying to make? I mean, the book's going to make it later. I was just sort of reminding people that it was there. Oh, oh, good. So like, it's a spoiler, not spoiler. Yeah. This is interesting. Look at it. Yeah. Speaking of which, um, spoiler, not spoilers. (laughs) I really liked in the text where it said that, um, Sir Charles blinked but hardly flinched when Pantalaimon like suddenly morphs from a hidden cricket into a giant snarling cat. And then and then we see like a snake come out of his sleeve. I thought that was worth highlighting in the text. I thought it was like good, subtle writing on um, Pullman's part. And that's all I'll say about that. And then the other thing that I really wanted to talk about was, of course, the big character moment of Pantalaimon deciding to touch Will. Like, moments after Elira thinks about the taboo and how Pantalaimon... Mm. Because it's just after, when they start the knife fight, Pantalaimon turns into a big bear. And Lyra thinks, he doesn't know Pantalaimon's not going to touch him. Almost to the point that she thinks Pantalaimon can't touch him. And then... Right. Moments later, we have Pantalaimon choosing to touch Will in like a prolonged manner. Like he lays his head down on him and then licks his hand a little bit. And Lyra not sort of being part of the decision kind of implies that it was like a subconscious action on her part or something Mm -hmm. similar. And she doesn't feel the same sort of uh, horrible gut-wrenching that she would with people from her world and i do wonder whether that reflects that will's demon is in fact part of will 
Hmm. That's an interesting thought. I was thinking of it more like the the man who touched Pantalaimon in uh, the previous book. The, yeah, in Bullvanger. There was no choice in that. In this one, Lyra is choosing this. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like a consent thing. Yeah. yeah. But that's interesting, the metaphysics of it, too. Yeah. Yeah, I agree about the consent. Because she feels connected to him. And there's, the, like you said before, there's this whole thing of we. I hadn't noticed how the thing with the bear, but like Anya was just saying, and I think what you're saying, that's good, like subtle writing, like mm-hmm. reminding you of the rules and then undermining those rules in a way where it's like, whoa, this is huge, right? Yeah. And do we think that Will understood how big of a moment this was for Lyra and Pan? No. No. Because he's too concentrated on the fact that he's bleeding to death? That's fair. Yeah. (laughs) I think the throbbing was pretty much all he was focused on. Right, right, of course. I guess, Anya, do you have any thoughts about what this could mean? About Pantalaimon wanting to touch Will? Yeah. When it hasn't even been a glimmer of a thought ever before in Lyra's life. Well, when you phrase it that way, are they going to hook up? I mean, because we've seen, like, (laughs) Mrs. I don't know. When Mrs. Coulter and Lord Asriel were making smoochies on the mountain, their demons were touching each other, but not the humans. Not themselves, no. Oh, that's Uh, right. That's right. So I guess it didn't strike me as indicating a romantic connection between them, but the way that you just phrased it now makes me wonder. Oh, I, I apologize. No, but I also, mean, like Francis was just saying, you know, if the, if his demon is in there, that's the only way to touch it. Right. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. I didn't even think about that, but like pantalaimon can't stroke his demon cause his demon is inside him. <laughs> Pardon? This whole conversation sounds <laughs> Metaphysical. Very bad. It's not dirty. It's dirty metaphysical. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Can I have that? On the honestly, t-shirt? like I, I think that's something to be really proud of. Being able to make metaphysics dirty. Like, well done. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's just us. I don't think that's Pullman. Anyway, <laughs> but like even in a friendship way, like we see uh, Rogers, Demon, and Pan touch each other all the time. It sounds so bad now. I can't think of anything else. Um, But, you know, when they're just. (laughs) Oh, dear. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So it's not necessarily romantic, um, but the touching. But but what's more significant is that the demon is touching a person. Yes, that's what I was going to say. It's not. Yeah. And with the contrast, I think. Well, I think we did sort of talk about. When it happened in Bullfanger, how it was, how you could interpret it as a kind of a rape metaphor, because mm-hmm. that man was touching this part of her that she did not invite him to touch, and in this one, she's cool with it. Right, she's ready for it in a way that she's not even conscious of. Okay, you know? well, they're twelve. Well- <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. Like, like something is kindling that she doesn't even understand, okay, okay. and she's not aware. I of genuinely and... thought you were making a joke. No, no, <laughs> okay. no. 
I think, but I think that is like the illusion that, you know, like we're, this is an arc, right? And yeah, this yeah, is yeah, yeah. part of the arc. It's also sort of coupled with it in a part in the book where we're, we have a very physical difference between kids and adults where like you will get your soul potentially eaten or whatever. You know, you will be attacked by these things if you are an adult, but being a kid, you won't. Right. And there's also a connection there with the previous book and Balvanger because what happens at Balvanger, you get cut from your demon, right? Yeah. There's this cutting. To stop. Here's, Will has just been cut. Here's the dust because you get cut to not have the dust attracted to you. Right. To, to stop. Because of physical attraction, right? And because of yeah. sin and... Uh, he is he has just been cut and there's been a kind of initiation into, you know, like his responsibility and his role and who he is. So this is kind of like he's growing up in the same way that Mrs. Coulter was like, no, this is for you to become an adult, but like a good adult and not a corrupted adult. Mm-hmm. And it seems like even the description of the knife has similarities to what was happening at with the knife, at, not the knife, but like. The thing at Balvanger that cut them? Right, Am I crazy the, about that? The, no, the world cutting side was the same color as the knife that cut apart the human and the right. demon. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's connections there. Right. Yeah. Lots of cutting in these books. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this before, but I know how, like, Pullman talks about how he specifically hated uh, Narnia and how he wrote these books in a way as like a response to them. But I've always thought of them more as like an anti Peter Pan. Cause I, I despise Peter Pan, that story. It, it's dumb. Mm. And it's about how being a child is really great. I hate being, I hated being a kid. Uh, so maybe that's just a personal <laughs> thing. And these books are very much about how growing up is actually a good thing. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. You saying that about Narnia makes me think also of, um, the knife in the first Narnia book, that The Lion, Lu- the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That Lucy gets? No, um, that the witch stabs oh, Aslan with. Yes. Yeah. Which is described in the book as a knife of an evil shape and was something in particular that Pullman complained about in his essays as like, what the hell does that mean? And that's stupid. Um Maybe that's why we get such a good description of this knife. We know exactly that's what, what it looks like. That's what I was just like. thinking, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think I'm done with that point. So before we wrap up, there were a couple other places in the text um, that I just wanted to highlight because they like made me laugh. Um, and I thought they were well done. Um, in the very beginning of Chapter 6, when Lee is um, scouting for information about Grumen some of the people he's talking to ask him like why he wants to know about Grumman anyway. Um, and he just says that uh, he owes me money. And then uh, Pullman writes the line, this explanation was so satisfying that it stopped curiosity at once. Um, and I just thought it was like very succinct and eloquently written and, and like really captures some like fundamental element of the human condition in like a funny way. And also makes me like Lee more. I was just going to say, I'm really interested to see how they, how these scenes go with, um, with what's his face. Miranda. (laughs) Lynn Manuel. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
I'm sorry, I should have let Anya say that. Yeah, 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 I'm the person who yells people's names. (laughs) (laughs) Who are you again? That's my teleological purpose, you guys. Nice. Just jump in when my teleological teleological purpose is to forget everyone's names. So together, (laughs) with our powers combined... Yes. The other line that I really liked um, was... There are few natural philosophers as frustrated as astronomers in a fog. Yeah, it's a cute turn of phrase. And it also like having known astronomers is just very true. Although I feel like when there's five of you trapped in an ice fortress or whatever, like you have the telescopes at your disposal every single night. Like I would actually use the fog as an excuse to like fuck off for the night in a good way. Um (laughs) But in real life, it's actually it can be like really bad because, you know, telescope time is really hard to come by. It's really expensive. You have to like apply months and months in advance. And then when you finally get time, you have like four days, you know, to shoot your shot. And if the weather is bad, then you can just be like genuinely super screwed and, like, that's one of the reasons why most telescopes are built in areas that, like, don't have a lot of weather, like the desert in Arizona. So, yeah, it just it reminded me of some of my time hanging out at telescopes. You're doing nothing to help the general public's view of academics. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> what do you do with all our taxpayers' dollars? Well, I sit at telescopes... And I fuck off for the day. (laughs) I do enjoy the thought of you just hanging out at telescopes. (laughs) I'll tell you, it's a better use of taxpayer dollars than arresting black people. Uh, Yes. But also, I will say that, like, all of my time fucking around at telescopes is during the day when the telescopes were not operational anyway. Um, That is when you get to, like, climb inside them and all sorts of other fun stuff. So they fire yeah. you out. They're actually a cannon in the day. The telescopes? Yeah. <laughs> you can look at the sun. There are oh, things Jesus. you can look at. Um, you can do it once. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I was just going to say, as somebody, as, as somebody who lives in the Pacific Northwest, I identify with this a lot because every time there's something interesting happening in the sky and it's like, yeah, we're going to have a real good view of it. Way great. Oh, it's cloudy. Yep. Pouring rain. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Try Britain. Every time. Oh, same weather. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you want to see the Perseids? They're peaking tonight. Pity it's cloudy for the next fucking month. Yep. (laughs) It's cloudy right now. I'm, I'm literally wearing a yes. sweater and I'm, I'm good and it's it's June it's June 21 oh god okay that's all for today join us next time we'll be talking about chapters 9 through 11 if you like our show please take some time to leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts I'm Anya and you can follow me on Twitter at strangely literal that's strangely then l-i-t-e-r-l I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at InferiorCaitlin. I'm Francis, and you can follow me on Twitter at Francis Windrum. Follow the show on Twitter at MOTPon. 
If you need more than 280 characters to speak your mind, send your emails to contact at hallowedgroundmedia.com. And remember, fuck the police. Yeah. to religion okay can we have a jingle for uh alan talks about religion for 40 minutes because i'm so (laughs) hyped for that i will try not to do that (laughs) a little barbershop quartet alan talks about religion for 40 minutes yeah (laughs) (laughs) it'll be like uh some gregorian like oh like like halo or something yes (laughs) alan talks about religion For too long, oh God, too long. (laughs) Exactly.